This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Crystal Crypt by Philip K. Dick. It's read by Ian Bradford Nungunungataha Pugh for LibriVox. It runs 50 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Crystal Crypt by Philip K. Dick Recording by Ian Bradford Nungunungataha, Pew. Stark terror ruled the inner flight ship on that last Mars terror run, for the black-clad laters were on the prowl, and the grim red planet was not far behind. Attention! Inner flight ship, attention! You are ordered to land at the control station on Deimos for inspection. Attention! You are to land at once! The metallic rasp of the speakers echoed through the corridors of the great ship. The passengers glanced at each other uneasily, murmuring and peering out the port windows at the small speck below, the dot of rock that was the Martian checkpoint Deimos. "'What's up?' an anxious passenger asked one of the pilots hurrying through the ship to check the escape lock. "'We have to land. Keep seated,' the pilot went on. "'Land? But why?' They all looked at each other. Hovering above the bulging inner-flight ship, were three slender Martian pursuit craft, poised and alert for any emergency. As the inner-flight ship prepared to land, the pursuit ships dropped lower, carefully maintaining themselves a short distance away. "'There's something going on,' a woman passenger said nervously. "'Lord, I thought we were finally through with those Martians. Now what?' "'I don't blame them for giving us one last going over,' a heavy-set businessman said to his companion. "'After all, we're the last ship leaving Mars for Terra. We're damn lucky they'll let us go at all.' "'You think there really will be a war?' a young man said to the girl sitting in the seat next to him. "'Those Martians don't dare fight, not with our weapons and ability to produce. We could take care of Mars in a month. It's all talk.' The girl glanced at him. Don't be so sure. Mars is desperate. They'll fight tooth and nail. I've been on Mars three years. She shuddered. Thank goodness I'm getting away. If... Prepare to land, the pilot's voice came. The ship began to settle slowly, dropping down towards the tiny emergency field on the seldom-visited moon. Down, down the ship dropped. There was a grinding sound, a sickening jolt. Then silence. "'We've landed,' the heavy-set businessman said. "'They better not do anything to us. "'Terror will rip them apart if they violate one space article.' "'Please keep your seats,' the pilot's voice came. "'No one is to leave the ship, according to the Martian authorities. "'We are to remain here.' "'A restless stir filled the ship. "'Some of the passengers began to read uneasily. "'Others stared out at the deserted field.' nervous and on edge, watching the three Martian pursuit ships land and disgorge groups of armed men. The Martian soldiers were crossing the field quickly, moving towards them, running double-time. The inner-flight spaceship was the last passenger vessel to leave Mars for Terra. 
all other ships had long since left, returning to safety before the outbreak of hostilities. The final group of Terrans to leave the grim red planet, businessmen, expatriates, tourists, and any and all Terrans who had not already gone home. "'What do you suppose they want?' the young man said to the girl. "'It's hard to figure Martians out, isn't it? First they give the ship clearance, let us take off, and now they radio us to set down again. Oh, by the way, my name's Thatcher, Bob Thatcher, since we're going to be here a while.' The port lock opened. Talking ceased abruptly as everyone turned. A black-clad Martian official, a province leader, stood framed against the bleak sunlight, staring around the ship. Behind him, a handful of Martian soldiers stood waiting, their guns ready. "'This will not take long,' the leader said, stepping into the ship, the soldiers following him. "'You will be allowed to continue your trip shortly.' An audible sigh of relief went through the passengers. "'Look at him,' the girl whispered to Thatcher. "'How I hate those black uniforms!' "'He's just a provincial leader,' Thatcher said. "'Don't worry.' The leader stood for a moment, his hands on his hips, looking around at them without expression. "'I have ordered your ship grounded so that an inspection can be made of all persons aboard.' he said. You Terrans are the last to leave our planet. Most of you are ordinary and harmless. I am not interested in you. I am interested in finding three saboteurs, three Terrans, two men and a woman who have committed an incredible act of destruction and violence. They are said to have fled to this ship. Murmurs of surprise and indignation broke out on all sides. The leader motioned the soldiers to follow him up the aisle. Two hours ago, a Martian city was destroyed. Nothing remains only a depression in the sand where the city was. The city and all its people have completely vanished, an entire city destroyed in a second. Mars will never rest until the saboteurs are captured, and we know they are aboard this ship. It's impossible! the heavy-set businessman said. There aren't any saboteurs here. We'll begin with you, the leader said to him, stepping up beside the man's seat. One of the soldiers passed the leader a square metal box. This will soon tell us if you're speaking the truth. Stand up. Get on your feet. The man rose slowly, flushing. See here. Are you involved in the destruction of the city? Answer. The man swallowed angrily. I know nothing of any destruction of any city, and furthermore, he is telling the truth, the metal box said tonelessly. Next person, the leader moved down the aisle. A thin, bald-headed man stood up nervously. 
"'No, sir,' he said. "'I don't know a thing about it.' "'He is telling the truth,' the box affirmed. "'Next person. Stand up.' One person after another stood, answered, and sat down again in relief. At last there were only a few people left who had not been questioned. The leader paused, studying them intently. "'Only five left. The three must be among you. We have narrowed it down.' His hand moved to his belt. Something flashed, a rod of pale fire. He raised the rod, pointing it steadily at the five people. "'All right. The first one of you. What do you know about this destruction?' Are you involved with the destruction of our city? No, not at all, the man murmured. Yes, he is telling the truth, the box intoned. Next. Nothing. I know nothing. I had nothing to do with it. True, the box said. The ship was silent. Three people remained a middle-aged man and his wife and their son, a boy of about twelve. They stood in the corner, staring white-faced at the leader, at the rod in his dark fingers. "'It must be you,' the leader grated, moving towards them. The Martian soldiers raised their guns. "'It must be you. You there, the boy.' What do you know about the destruction of our city? Answer. The boy shook his head. Nothing, he whispered. The box was silent for a moment. He is telling the truth, it said reluctantly. Next. Nothing, the woman muttered. Nothing. The truth. Next. "'I had nothing to do with the blowing up of your city,' the man said. "'You're wasting your time.' "'It is the truth,' the box said. "'For a long time the leader stood, toying with his rod. "'At last he pushed it back in his belt "'and signaled the soldiers towards the exit lock. "'You may proceed on your trip,' he said. "'He walked after the soldiers.' At the hatch, he stopped, looked back at the passengers, his face grim. You may go, but Mars will not allow her enemies to escape. The three saboteurs will be caught, I promise you. He rubbed his dark jaw thoughtfully. It is strange. I was certain they were on this ship. Again he looked coldly around at the Terrans. Perhaps I was wrong. All right. Proceed. But remember, the three will be caught. Even if it takes endless years, Mars will catch them and punish them. I swear it. For a long time no one spoke. The ship lumbered through space again, its jets firing evenly, calmly, moving the passengers towards their own planet, towards home. 
Behind them, Deimos and the red ball that was Mars dropped further and further away each moment, disappearing and fading into the distance. A sigh of relief passed through the passengers. "'What a lot of hot air that was!' one grumbled. "'Barbarians!' a woman said. A few of them stood up, moving out into the aisle, towards the lounge and the cocktail bar. Beside Thatcher, the girl got to her feet, pulled her jacket around her shoulders. "'Pardon me,' she said, stepping past him. "'Going to the bar,' Thatcher said. "'Mind if I come along?' "'I suppose not.' They followed the others into the lounge, walking together up the aisle. "'You know,' Thatcher said, "'I don't even know your name yet.' "'My name is Mara Gordon.' "'Mara? That's a nice name.' What part of terror are you from? North America? New York? I've been in New York, Mara said. New York is very lovely. She was slender and pretty, with a cloud of dark hair tumbling down her neck against her leather jacket. They entered the lounge and stood undecided. Let's sit at a table, Mara said, looking around at the people at the bar, mostly men. Perhaps that table over there. But somebody's already there, Thatcher said. The heavy-set businessman had sat down at the table and deposited his sample case on the floor. "'Do we want to sit with him?' "'Oh, it's all right,' Mara said, crossing to the table. "'May we sit here?' she said to the man. The man looked up, half-rising. "'It's a pleasure,' he murmured. He studied Thatcher intently. "'However, a friend of mine will be joining me in a moment.' "'I'm sure there's enough room for us all,' Mara said." She seated herself, and Thatcher helped her with her chair. He sat down, too, glancing up suddenly at Mara and the businessman. They were looking at each other almost as if something had passed between them. The man was middle-aged, with a florid face and tired, gray eyes. His hands were mottled, with the veins showing thickly. At the moment, he was tapping nervously. "'My name's Thatcher,' Thatcher said to him, holding out his hand. "'Bob Thatcher. Since we're going to be together for a while, we might as well get to know each other.' The man studied him. Slowly, his hand came out. "'Why not? My name's Erickson. Ralph Erickson.' "'Erickson?' Thatcher smiled. "'You look like a commercial man to me.' He nodded towards the sample case on the floor. "'Am I right?' The man named Erickson started to answer, but at that moment there was a stir. A thin man, about thirty, had come up to the table, his eyes bright, staring down at them warmly. "'Well, we're on our way,' he said to Erickson. "'Hello, Mara.' He pulled out a chair and sat down quickly, folding his hands on the table before him. He noticed Thatcher and drew back a little. "'Pardon me,' he murmured. "'Bob Thatcher's my name,' Thatcher said. "'I hope I'm not intruding here.' He glanced around at the three of them, Mara, alert, watching him intently. Heavy said Erickson, his face blank, and this person— "'Say, do you three know each other?' he asked suddenly. There was silence. The robot attendant slid over soundlessly, poised to take their orders. Erickson roused himself. Uh, "'Let's see,' he murmured. "'What will we have? Mara?' "'Whiskey and water.' "'You, Jan?' The bright, slim man smiled. "'The same. Thatcher?' "'Gin and tonic.' "'Whiskey and water for me also,' Erickson said." The robot attendant went off. It returned at once with the drinks, setting them on the table. Each took his own. Well, Erickson said, holding up his glass. 
to our mutual success. All drank, Thatcher and the three of them, heavy-set Erickson, Mara, her eyes nervous and alert, Jan, who had just come along. Again, a look passed between Mara and Erickson, a look so swift that he would not have caught it had he not been looking directly at her. "'What line do you represent, Mr. Erickson?' Thatcher asked. Erickson glanced at him, then down at the sample case on the floor. He grunted, "'Well, uh, as you see, I'm a salesman.' Thatcher smiled. "'I knew it. You get so you can always spot a salesman right off by his sample case. A salesman always has to carry something to show. What are you in, sir?' Erickson paused. He licked his thick lips, his eyes blank and lidded like a toad's. At last, he rubbed his mouth with his hand and reached down, lifting up the sample case. He set it on the table in front of him. "'Well,' he said, "'perhaps we might even show Mr. Thatcher.' They all stared down at the sample case. It seemed to be an ordinary leather case with a metal handle and a snap lock. "'I'm getting curious,' Thatcher said. "'What's in there? You're all so tense. Diamonds?' "'Stolen jewels?' Jan laughed harshly, mirthlessly. "'Eric, put it down. We're not far enough away yet.' "'Nonsense,' Eric rumbled. "'We're away, Jan.' "'Please,' Mara whispered. "'Wait, Eric.' "'Wait? Why? What for? You're so accustomed to—' "'Eric,' Mara said. She nodded towards Thatcher. "'We don't know him, Eric. Please.' "'He's Terran, isn't he?' Erickson said. "'All Terrans are together in these times.' He fumbled suddenly at the cat's lock on the case. "'Yes, Mr. Thatcher, I'm a salesman. We're all salesmen, the three of us.' "'Then you do know each other?' "'Yes,' Erickson nodded. His two companions sat rigidly, staring down. "'Yes, we do. Here, I'll show you our line.' He opened the case. From it he took a letter-knife— a pencil sharpener, a glass globe paperweight, a box of thumbtacks, a stapler, some clips, a plastic ashtray, and some things Thatcher could not identify. He placed the objects in a row in front of him on the tabletop. Then he closed the sample case. "'I gather you're in office supplies,' Thatcher said. He touched the letter knife with his finger. "'Nice quality steel. Looks like Swedish steel to me.' Erickson nodded, looking into Thatcher's face. Not really an impressive business, is it? Office supplies, ashtrays, paper clips. He smiled. Oh, Thatcher shrugged. Why not? They're a necessity in modern business. The only thing I wonder... What's that? Well, I wonder how you'd ever find enough customers on Mars to make it worth your while. He paused, examining the glass paperweight. He lifted it up, holding it to the light staring at the scene within until Erickson took it out of his hand and put it back in the sample case. And another thing. If you three know each other, why did you sit apart when you got on? They looked at him quickly. And why didn't you speak to each other until we left Demos? He leaned towards Erickson, smiling at him. Two men and a woman. Three of you, sitting apart in a ship, not speaking, not until the check station was passed. I find myself thinking over what that Martian said. Three saboteurs, a woman and two men. Erickson put the things back in the sample case. He was smiling, but his face had gone chalk white. Mara stared down, 
playing with a drop of water on the edge of her glass. Jan clenched his hands together nervously, blinking rapidly. "'You three are the ones the leader was after,' Thatcher said softly. "'You are the destroyers, the saboteurs. But they're lie detector. Why didn't it trap you? How did you get by that? And now you're safe, outside the check station.' He grinned, staring around at them. "'I'll be damned! And I really thought you were a salesman, Erickson. You really fooled me!' Erickson relaxed a little. "'Well, Mr. Thatcher, it's in a good cause. I'm sure you have no love for Mars, either. No Terran does. And I see you're leaving with the rest of us.' "'True,' Thatcher said. "'You must certainly have an interesting account to give the three of you.' He looked around the table. "'We still have an hour or so of travel. Sometimes it gets dull, this Mars Terra run. Nothing to see, nothing to do but sit and drink in the lounge.' He raised his eyes slowly. "'Any chance you'd like to spin a story to keep us awake?' Jan and Mara looked at Erickson. "'Go on,' Jan said. "'He knows who we are. Tell him the rest of the story.' "'You might as well,' Mara said.' Jan let out a sigh suddenly, a sigh of relief. "'Let's put the cards on the table. Get this weight off us. I'm tired of sneaking around, slipping.' "'Sure,' Erickson said expansively. "'Why not?' He settled back in his chair, unbuttoning his vest. "'Certainly, Mr. Thatcher. I'll be glad to spin you a story, and I'm sure it will be interesting enough to keep you awake.' They ran through the groves of dead trees, leaping across the sun-baked Martian soil, running silently together. They went up a little rise, across a narrow ridge. Suddenly, Eric stopped, throwing himself down flat on the ground. The others did the same, pressing themselves against the soil, gasping for breath. "'Be silent,' Eric muttered. He raised himself a little. "'No noise. There'll be leeches nearby from now on. We don't dare take any chances.' Between the three people lying in the grove of dead trees and the city was a barren, level waste of desert over a mile of blasted sand. No trees or bushes marred the smooth, parched surface. Only an occasional wind, a dry wind eddying and twisting, blew the sand up into little rills. A faint odor came to them, a bitter smell of heat and sand carried by the wind. Eric pointed. Look! The city! There it is! They stared still breathing deeply from their race through the trees. The city was close, closer than they had ever seen it before. Never had they gotten so close to it in times past. Terrans were never allowed near the great Martian cities, the centers of Martian life. Even in ordinary times, when there was no threat of approaching war, the Martians shrewdly kept all Terrans away from their citadels, partly from fear, partly from a deep, innate sense of hostility towards the white-skinned visitors whose commercial ventures had earned them the respect and the dislike of the whole system. "'How does it look to you?' Eric said. The city was huge, much larger than they had imagined from the drawings and models they had studied so carefully back in New York, in the War Ministry office. Huge it was, huge and stark, black towers rising up against the sky, incredibly thin columns of ancient metal, columns that had stood wind and sun for centuries. Immense bricks that had been lugged there and fitted into place by slaves of the early Martian dynasties, under the whiplash of the first great kings of Mars. An ancient, sun-baked city, 
a city in the middle of a wasted plain, beyond groves of dead trees, a city seldom seen by Terrans, but a city studied on maps and charts in every war office on Terra. A city that contained, for all its ancient stone and archaic towers, the ruling group of all Mars, the Council of Senior Leaders, black-clad men who governed and ruled with an iron fist. The senior leaders, twelve fanatic and devoted men, black priests, but priests with flashing rods of fire, lie detectors, rocket ships, intraspace cannon, many more things the Terran Senate could only conjecture about, the senior leaders and their subordinate province leaders. Eric and the two behind him suppressed a shudder. "'We've got to be careful,' Eric said. "'We'll be passing among them soon. "'If they guess who we are or what we're here for—' "'He snapped open the case he carried, glancing inside for a second. "'Then he closed it again, grasping the handle firmly. "'Let's go,' he said. "'He stood up slowly. "'You two, come up beside me. "'I want to make sure you look the way you should.' "'Mara and Jan stepped quickly ahead. "'Eric studied them critically as the three of them walked slowly down the slope— onto the plain, towards the towering black spires of the city. "'Jan,' Eric said, "'take hold of her hand. Remember, you're going to marry her. She's your bride. And Martian peasants think a lot of their brides.' Jan was dressed in the short trousers and coat of the Martian farmer. A knotted rope tied around his waist, a hat on his head to keep off the sun. His skin was dark, colored by dye until it was almost bronze. "'You look fine,' Eric said to him. He glanced at Mara. Her black hair was tied in a knot, looped through a hollowed-out yuke bone. Her face was dark, too, dark and lined with colored ceremonial pigment, green and orange stripes across her cheeks. Earrings were strung through her ears. On her feet were tiny slippers of peruhide, laced around her ankles. And she wore long, translucent Martian trousers with a bright sash tied around her waist. Between her small breasts a chain of stone beads rested, good luck charms for the coming marriage. "'All right,' Eric said. He himself wore the flowing gray robe of a Martian priest, dirty robes that were supposed to remain on him all his life, to be buried around him when he died. "'I think we'll get past the guards. There should be heavy morning traffic on the road.' They walked on, the hard sand crunching under their feet. Against the horizon they could see specks moving, other persons going towards the city, farmers and peasants and merchants bringing their crops and goods to market. "'See the cart?' Mara exclaimed. They were nearing a narrow road, two ruts worn into the sand. A Martian hoofa was pulling the cart, its great sides wet with perspiration, its tongue hanging out. The cart was piled high with bales of cloth, rough country cloth, hand-dipped. A bent farmer urged the hoofa on. "'And there!' she pointed, smiling." A group of merchants riding small animals were moving along beside the cart, Martians in long robes, their faces hidden by sand masks. On each animal was a pack, carefully tied on with rope, and beyond the merchants, plodding dully along, were peasants and farmers in an endless procession, some riding carts or animals, but mostly on foot. Mara and Jan and Eric joined the line of people, melting in behind the merchants. No one noticed them. No one looked up or gave any sign. The march continued as before. Neither Jan nor Mara said anything to each other. They walked a little behind Eric, who paced with a certain dignity, a certain bearing becoming his position. Once he slowed down, pointing up at the sky. Look, 
he murmured in the Martian Hill dialect. See that? Two black dots circled lazily. Martian patrol craft, the military on the outlook for any sign of unusual activity. War was almost ready to break out with Terra, any day, almost any moment. We'll be just in time, Eric said. Tomorrow will be too late. The last ship will have left Mars. I hope nothing stops us, Mara said. I want to get back home when we're through. Half an hour passed. They neared the city, the wall growing as they walked, rising higher and higher until it seemed to blot out the sky itself. A vast wall, a wall of eternal stone that had felt wind and sun for centuries. A group of Martian soldiers were standing at the entrance, the single passage gate hewn into the rock, leading into the city. As each person went through, the soldiers examined him, poking his garments, looking into his load. Eric tensed. The line had slowed almost to a halt. "'It'll be our turn soon,' he murmured. "'Be prepared.' "'Let's hope no leaders come around,' Jan said. "'The soldiers aren't so bad.' Mara was staring up at the wall and the towers beyond. Under their feet the ground trembled, vibrating and shaking. She could see tongues of flame rising above the towers, from the deep underground factories and the forges of the city. The air was thick and dense with particles of soot. Mara rubbed her mouth, coughing. "'Here they come!' Eric said softly. The merchants had been examined and allowed to pass through the dark gate, the entrance through the wall into the city. They and their silent animals had already disappeared inside. The leader of the group of soldiers was beckoning impatiently to Eric, waving him on. "'Come along,' he said. "'Hurry up there, old man!' Eric advanced slowly, his arms wrapped around his body, looking down at the ground. "'Who are you and what's your business here?' the soldier demanded his hands on his hips, his gun hanging idly at his waist. Most of the soldiers were lounging lazily, leaning against the wall, some even squatting in the shade. Flies crawled on the face of one who had fallen asleep, his gun on the ground beside him. "'My business,' Eric murmured. "'I'm a village priest.' "'Why do you want to enter the city?' "'I must bring these two people before the magistrate to marry them.' He indicated Mara and Jan, standing a little behind him. That is the law the leaders have made. The soldier laughed. He circled around Eric. What do you have in that bag you carry? Laundry. We stay the night. What village are you from? Kronos. Kronos? The soldier looked to his companion. Ever heard of Kronos? A backwater pigsty. I saw it once on a hunting trip. The leader of the soldiers nodded to Jan and Mara. The two of them advanced, their hands clasped, standing close together. One of the soldiers put his hand on Mara's bare shoulder, turning her around. "'Nice little wife you're getting,' he said. "'Good and firm-looking,' he winked, grinning lewdly. Jan glanced at him in sullen resentment. The soldiers guffawed. "'All right,' the leader said to Eric. "'You people can pass.' Eric took a small purse from his robe and gave the soldier a coin. The three of them went into the dark tunnel that was the entrance, passing through the wall of stone, into the city beyond. They were within the city. Now, Eric whispered, hurry! Around them the city roared and cracked, the sound of a thousand vents and machines shaking the stones under their feet. Eric led Mara and Jan into a corner by a row of brick warehouses. People were everywhere, hurrying back and forth, shouting above the din, 
Merchants, peddlers, soldiers, street women. Eric bent down and opened the case he carried. From the case he quickly took three small coils of fine metal. Intricate meshed wires and veins worked together into a small cone. Jan took one and Mara took one. Eric put the remaining cone into his robe and snapped the case shut again. Now remember, the coils must be buried in such a way that the line runs through the center of the city. We must trisect the main section where the largest concentration of buildings is. Remember the maps. Watch the alleys and streets carefully. Talk to no one if you can help it. Each of you has enough Martian money to buy your way out of trouble. Watch especially for cut purses, and for heaven's sake, don't get lost. Eric broke off. Two black-clad leaders were coming along the inside of the wall, strolling together with their hands behind their backs. They noticed the three who stood in the corner by the warehouses and stopped. Go, Eric muttered, and be back here at sundown, he smiled grimly, or never come back. Each went off a different way, walking quickly without looking back. The leaders watched them go. The little bride was quite lovely, one leader said. Those hill people have the stamp of nobility in their blood from the old times. A very lucky peasant to possess her, the other said. They went on. Eric looked after them, smiling a little. Then he joined the surging mass of people that milled eternally through the streets of the city. At dusk they met outside the gate. The sun was soon to set, and the air had turned thin and frigid. It cut through their clothing like knives. Mara huddled against Jan, trembling and rubbing her bare arms. "'Well,' Eric said, "'did you both succeed?' Around them, peasants and merchants were pouring from the entrance, leaving the city to return to their farms and villages, starting the long trip back across the plain towards the hills beyond. None of them noticed the shivering girl and the young man and the old priest standing by the wall. "'Mine's in place,' Jan said, "'on the other side of the city, on the extreme edge.' "'Buried by a well.' "'Mine's in an industrial section,' Mara whispered, her teeth chattering. "'Jan, give me something to put over me. I'm freezing.' "'Good,' Eric said. "'Then the three coils should trisect dead center, if the models were correct.' He looked up at the darkening sky. Already stars were beginning to show. Two dots, the evening patrol, moving slowly towards the horizon. "'Let's hurry. It, it won't be long.' They joined the line of Martians, moving along the road, away from the city. Behind them, the city was losing itself into the somber tones of night, its black spires disappearing into the darkness. They walked silently with the country people until a flat ridge of dead trees became visible on the horizon. Then they left the road and turned off, walking towards the trees. "'Almost time,' Eric said. He increased his pace, looking back at Jan and Mara impatiently. Come on! They hurried, making their way through the twilight, stumbling over rocks and dead branches, up the side of the ridge. At the top, Eric halted, standing with his hands on his hips, looking back. See? he murmured. The city. The last time we'll see it this way. Can I sit down? Mara said. My feet hurt me. Jan pulled at Eric's sleeve. Hurry, Eric! Not much time left! He laughed nervously. If everything goes all right, we'll be able to look at it forever. But not like this, Eric murmured. 
he squatted down, snapping his case open. He took some tubes and wiring out and assembled them together on the ground at the peak of the ridge. A small pyramid of wire and plastic grew, shaped by his expert hands. At last he grunted, standing up. "'All right.' "'Is it pointed directly at the city?' Mara asked anxiously, looking down at the pyramid. Eric nodded. "'Yes, it's placed according—' He stopped, suddenly stiffening. "'Get back! It's time! Hurry!' Jan ran down the far side of the slope, away from the city, pulling Mara with him. Eric came quickly after, still looking back at the distant spires, almost lost in the night sky. "'Down!' Jan sprawled out, Mara beside him, her trembling body pressed against his. Eric settled down in the sand and dead branches, still trying to see. "'I want to see it,' he murmured. "'A miracle! I want to see!' A flash, a blinding burst of violet light lit up the sky. Eric clapped his hands over his eyes. The flash whitened, growing larger, expanding. Suddenly there was a roar and a furious hot wind pushed past him, throwing him on his face in the sand. The hot dry wind licked and seared at them, crackling the bits of branches into flame. Mara and Jan shut their eyes, pressed tightly together. "'God!' Eric muttered. The storm passed. They opened their eyes slowly. The sky was still alive with fire, a drifting cloud of sparks that was beginning to dissipate with the night wind. Eric stood up unsteadily, helping Jan and Mara to their feet. The three of them stood, staring silently across the dark waste, the black plain, none of them speaking. The city was gone. At last, Eric turned away. "'That part's done,' he said. "'Now the rest. Give me a hand, Jan. There'll be a thousand patrol ships around here in a minute.' "'I see one already,' Mara said, pointing up. A spot winked in the sky, a rapidly moving spot. "'They're coming, Eric!' There was a throb of chill fear in her voice. "'I know!' Eric and Jan squatted on the ground around the pyramid of tubes and plastic, pulling the pyramid apart. The pyramid was fused, fused together like molten glass. Eric tore the pieces away with trembling fingers. From the remains of the pyramid he pulled something forth, something he held up high, trying to make it out in the darkness. Jan and Mara came close to see, both staring up intently, almost without breathing. "'There it is,' Eric said. "'There!' In his hand was a globe, a small, transparent globe of glass. Within the glass something moved, something minute and fragile, spires almost too small to be seen, microscopic, a complex web swimming within the hollow glass globe, a web of spires, a city. Eric put the globe into the case and snapped it shut. "'Let's go,' he said. They began to lope back through the trees, back the way they had come before. "'We'll change in the car,' he said as they ran. "'I think we should keep these clothes on until we're actually inside the car. We still might encounter someone.' "'I'll be glad to get my own clothing on again,' Jan said. "'I feel funny in these little pants.' "'How do you think I feel?' Mara gasped. I'm freezing in this, what there is of it. All the young Martian brides dress that way, Eric said. He clutched the case tightly as they ran. I think it looks fine. Thank you, Mara said, but it is cold. 
What do you suppose they'll think? Jan asked. They'll assume the city was destroyed, won't they? That's certain. Yes, Eric said. They'll be sure it was blown up. We can count on that. And it will be damn important to us that they think so. The car should be around here someplace, Mara said, slowing down. No, farther on, Eric said. Past that little hill over there, in the ravine by the trees. It's so hard to see where we are. Shall I light something? Jan said. No, there are maybe patrols around who— He halted abruptly. Jan and Mara stopped beside him. What? Mara began. A light glimmered. Something stirred in the darkness. There was a sound. Quick! Eric rasped. He dropped, throwing the case far away from him into the bushes. He straightened up tensely. A figure loomed up, moving through the darkness, and behind it came more figures, men, soldiers in uniform. The light flashed up brightly, blinding them. Eric closed his eyes. The light left him, touching Mara and Jan, standing silently together, clasping hands. Then it flicked down to the ground and around in a circle. A leader stepped forward, a tall figure in black, with his soldiers close behind him, their guns ready. "'You three, the leader said. "'Who are you?' "'Don't move. Stand where you are.' He came up to Eric, peering at him intently, his hard Martian face without expression. He went all around Eric, examining his robes, his sleeves. "'Please!' Eric began in a quavering voice, but the leader cut him off. "'I'll do the talking. Who are you three? What are you doing here? Speak up!' "'We are going back to our village,' Eric muttered, staring down, his hands folded. "'We were in the city, and we're going home.' One of the soldiers spoke into a mouthpiece. He clicked it off and put it away. "'Come with me.' the leader said. We're taking you in. Hurry along. In? Back to the city? One of the soldiers laughed. The city is gone, he said. All that's left of it you can put in the palm of your hand. But what happened? Mara said. No one knows. Come on, hurry it up. There was a sound. A soldier came quickly out of the darkness. A senior leader, he said, coming this way. He disappeared again. A senior leader! The soldier stood waiting, standing at a respectful attention. A moment later, the senior leader stepped into the light. A black-clad old man, his ancient face thin and hard, like a bird's, eyes bright and alert. He looked from Eric to Jan. Who are these people? Villagers going back home. No. They're not. They don't stand like villagers. Villagers slump. Diet, poor food. These people are not villagers. I came from the hills, and I know. He stepped close to Eric, looking keenly into his face. Who are you? Look at his chin. He never shaved with a sharpened stone. Something is wrong here. In his hand, a rod of pale fire flashed. The city is gone, and with it at least half the leader council. It is very strange. A flash, then heat, and a wind. 
but it was not fission. I am puzzled. All at once, the city has vanished. Nothing is left but a depression in the sand. We'll take them in, the other leader said. Soldiers, surround them. Make certain that... Run! Eric cried. He struck out, knocking the rod from the senior leader's hand. They were running, soldiers shouting, flashing their lights, stumbling against each other in the darkness. Eric dropped to his knees, groping frantically in the bushes. His fingers closed over the handle of the case, and he leaped up. In Terran, he shouted to Mara and Jan, Hurry! To the car! Run! He set off down the slope, stumbling through the darkness. He could hear soldiers behind him, soldiers running and falling. A body collided against him and struck out. Some place behind him there was a hiss, and a section of the slope went up in flames. The leader's rod! Eric! Mara cried from the darkness. He ran towards her. Suddenly he slipped, falling on a stone. Confusion and firing, the sound of excited voices. Eric, is that you? Jan caught hold of him, helping him up. The car! Uh, it, it, it's over here! Where's Mara? I'm here! Mara's voice came. Over here! By the car! A light flashed. A tree went up in a puff of fire, and Eric felt the singe of the heat against his face. He and Jan made their way towards the girl. Mara's hand caught his in the darkness. Now the car, Eric said, if they haven't got to it. He slid down the slope into the ravine, fumbling in the darkness, reaching and holding onto the handle of the case, reaching, reaching. He touched something cold and smooth, metal, a metal door handle. Relief flooded through him. I've found it. Jan, get inside. Mara, come on. He pushed Jan past him into the car. Mara slipped in after Jan, her small, agile body crowding in beside him. "'Stop!' a voice shouted from above. "'There's no use hiding in that ravine! We'll get you! Come up and—' The sound of the voices was drowned out by the roar of the car's motor. A moment later, they shot into the darkness, the car rising into the air. Treetops broke and cracked under them as Eric turned the car from side to side. The last furious thrusts from the two leaders and their soldiers— then they were away, above the trees, high in the air, gaining speed each moment, leaving the knot of Martians far behind. "'Towards Marsport,' Jan said to Eric. "'Right?' Eric nodded. "'Yes. We'll land outside the field in the hills. We can change back into our regular clothes there, our, our commercial clothing. Damn it, we'll be lucky if we can get there in time for the ship.' "'The last ship,' Mara whispered, her chest rising and falling. What if we don't get there in time? Eric looked down at the leather case in his lap. We'll have to get there, he murmured. We must. For a long time there was silence. Thatcher stared at Erickson. The older man was leaning back in his chair, sipping a little of his drink. Mara and Jan were silent. So you didn't destroy the city, Thatcher said. You didn't destroy it at all. You shrank it down and put it in a glass globe in a paperweight. And now you're a salesman again, with a sample case of office supplies. Erickson smiled. He opened the briefcase, and reaching into it, he brought out the glass globe paperweight. He held it up, looking into it. Yes, we stole the city from the Martians. That's how we got by the lie detector. It was true that we knew nothing about a destroyed city.
But why? Thatcher said. Why steal a city? Why not merely bomb it? Ransom, Mara said fervently, gazing into the globe, her dark eyes bright. Their biggest city, half of their council, in Eric's hand. Mars will have to do what Terra asks, Erickson said. Now Terra will be able to make her commercial demands felt. Maybe there won't even be a war. Perhaps Terra will get her way without fighting. Still smiling, he put the glass globe back into the briefcase and locked it. Quite a story, Thatcher said. What an amazing process. Reduction of size. A whole city reduced to microscopic dimensions. Amazing. No wonder you were able to escape. With such daring as that, no one could hope to stop you. He looked down at the briefcase on the floor. Underneath them, the jets murmured and vibrated evenly, and the ship moved through space towards distant Terra. We still have quite a way to go, Jan said. You've heard our story, Thatcher. Why not tell us yours? What sort of line are you in? What's your business? Yes, Mara said. What do you do? What do I do? Thatcher said. Well, if you like, I'll show you. He reached into his coat and brought out something. Something that flashed and glinted. Something slender. A rod of pale fire. The three stared at it. Sickened shock settled over them. Thatcher held the rod loosely, calmly, pointing it at Erickson. We knew you three were on this ship, he said. There was no doubt of that. But we didn't know what had become of the city. My theory was the city had not been destroyed at all, that something else had happened to it. Council instruments measured a sudden loss of mass in the area, a decrease equal to the mass of the city. Somehow the city had been spirited away, not destroyed. But I could not convince the other council leaders of it. I had to follow you alone. Thatcher turned a little, nodding to the men sitting at the bar. The men rose at once, coming towards the table. A very interesting process you have. Mars will benefit a great deal from it. Perhaps it will even turn the tide in our favor. When we return to Marsport, I wish to begin work on it at once. And now, if you will please pass me the briefcase. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. Hello, I'm Marissa. Hello, I'm Evan. We're going to talk about The Crystal Crypt uh, by Philip K. Dick. This is first published in Planet Stories. Um, a lot, I don't know, I've been doing a lot of Planet Stories lately. Gutenberg's been doing a lot of Planet Stories. Uh, Planet Stories, January 1954. So this technically was published in 1953, which is his first big year. He had like one story published in 52, I think, um, as a professional. And so this is classifiable with the first lot of stories he wrote and uh it has a lot in common i think with stories like the variable man and um a lot of junky stories um that you know are not my favorites but um this is this is one of the ones that i was like what the hell is going on with it because it, it seems really simple and i think it is i think it's even um, maybe a little too simple but um I don't think Evan's idea is perfectly right. I listened to your podcast, Evan, and you were yeah, talking. Yeah, what's Evan's take? I, think, I mean, I, idea, I always Evan? thought the story was kind of simple, and then it is simple. You you expressed your interest in it, yeah. And that was kind of why it's like this one would be 
on the top of my list of stories that no a lot to talk about. Well, that's the thing is is if if somebody did something and you know they're really smart, right? Philip K. Dick is not you know it's not a wise man, <laughs> but he's really smart. And he's a deep thinker. Um, when they do something that you don't understand, it's it's probably not because they're stupid. Wow, it's probably because uh, the reader's stupid. I'm stupid. So uh, mm-hmm. when I read this the first time, I'm like, "Don't nag yourself." <laughs> um, no, uh, what I mean by stupid is I'm not getting it, which means I need to, you know, look at it a different. Like, because if you read some things and you say that's forgettable, that's bad, right? Um, it's probably because it's bad. But if you know it's somebody who's consistently done good work, why would you think it's bad? So w- before we get too deep into that, I was—I just want to point out some of the weird things that, um, Evan. One of the things you've done is you've read all of Philip K. Dick's stories except for those um, very earliest uh, short stories that he published in the newspaper yeah, as a kid. Yeah, posthumous stuff. The yeah, and maybe f- all those. some of his um, novels that were. Um, but like you mentioned stability in your podcast, which is one I've never read. And that was a published late in life, I guess, or maybe a- after he died. But it was his first well, attempt that has at a the story. Same device of a of a world encapsulated in a in a globe. Right. I was actually when I was re rereading this one, I was thinking again, like like yeah, this is like stability. Or at least in the sense that you have this device. Very different effect, though. Mm-hmm. This is much more straightforward. Stability is weird. Mm. Um, would you recommend that we do it for this podcast? Would you recommend that we tackle it for this podcast, Evan? I, I kind of would, but it's... I mean, there's... It's not very... It doesn't feel very Philip K. Dick, that one, right? I, I've, never, I've never even looked it, at it, it so I have does. no idea. Yeah, it, it does. I've never read it, though. It's actually more of Philip K. Dick than this. It was published oh. in '87. Wait, is it the one with the Flying Man, or am I thinking of something else? Well, it's one of the stories of the Flying Man. It says man. miniaturization, no, time travel, and metaphysic uh, on Ooh. the tags. But it, w- it was written in '47 or earlier, and wasn't published until '87. Right, so it was never. Yeah, never- not till the, yeah, not till the collected short stories were published in the five volume. So that's why I never looked at it because it was never in a magazine that I could scan and look at the illustrations for it. But there's an, another one you mentioned too. I think it was the Trouble with Bubbles, which is another one I've never. Is that that's not the right title? Oh, right? that that one might be fun to look at because that's that's kind of about world building. Uh. Like that's where where people create little like simulated worlds and bubbles. Yeah, the and, Trouble with Bubbles, oh, cool. and then there's the ethical concerns like. Can we? Because people are like destroying these worlds, and then oh, like, that sounds interesting. If you destroy the matrix, are you, you know, are you slaughtering billions? Mm. Or like the thirteenth floor? Yeah, same ideas. Like, are you are you me- you're messing with lie real lies? Which know, is like, something that I felt was really missing in this story. <laughs> there's a lot of weirdness in this story, but um, I, I want to point besides the miniaturization because. If if we're talking about you know what goes on the retorizer, this is the this is the only one that I've read where there is a uh, basically a snow globe with a city in it, right? But 
But that's, to me, that's where this fascination comes from, is he was maybe looking at somebody's desk or, you know, his dad's (laughs) desk, his mom's desk, right? And there's, like, a paperweight on it. And inside the... I mean, what are those things for, right? The stapler has a function. And, you know, uh, paper clips have functions. Paperweight is when you've got a fan, <laughs> a fan blowing air over your desk at you, and you don't want your papers flying away. But they can be anything. It be, can be a rock. So some people do, and I, I don't know why, but they do collect these little, you know, worlds in a bottle, little worlds in a snow globe, right? Mm-hmm. I don't understand it myself. The, uh, I, I, Would you like me to explain? Yeah, sure. Um, be, because I've, I've had snow globes and worlds in a bottle and mm-hmm. sand castles and other things once upon a time. It's a, it's a way to escape the mundanity of the desk job you have yeah. in front of you. Yeah. You have something there that you can imagine you just perceptive yourself into. This, this goes into, no surprise, Tommy Udall. You know about Tommy Football Udall, player? Tommy Udall, right? No. Um, okay, so, so, uh, Homicide Life on the Street and St. Elsewhere were two TV shows in the 1980s. And they crossed over each other and had guest appearances. And, and the last episode of St. Elsewhere, we find out that everything we've ever seen is huh. really just little autistic Tommy Udall looking into a snow globe that okay. has St. Elsewhere in it. And so there's a, there's a theory that the entire, that every, because it, because these shows, if you, Branch out can connect to other TV shows. That all of cinematic television is really just in the <laughs> mind of the imagination of Tommy Udall. Yeah. So, so, so having these snow globes, having these little tchotchkes in front of you, it's a way for a few minutes to stare at something and just get your mind off the mundanity of the paperwork in front of you and imagine yourself right. somewhere else. So when when the liberation from horrible work comes, snow globes will go the way of the dinosaur. Oh, I, I think so. I, 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 yes, yes. If you want to put it, or there'll be, it, or there'll be a collector's um, item of that period of time, right? Like, I, 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 I mean, for most of, for us here, we have things like science fiction and fantasy to really occupy ourselves instead to read and whatnot. But, but for hmm. the average person who doesn't read science fiction and fantasy and wants to get away for a couple of minutes, a snow globe does that. Hmm. It. It, 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 it works. I mean, right, right. And, of course, as a kid, I was interested in them when people had them because you get to go over there and you shake it up, right? And you see all the little flakes moving around and then it looks like it's snowing for a minute, right? Right. And then it all settles back down and the house or whatever's inside uh, is still there. And it's a little world. It's. It, I, I was thinking it's, it's, it's kind it's of like God world. power, right? Uh, right. Um, and that's why kids like it, is because it makes them feel powerful. So, so can I tie this back into science fiction by talking about Candor for a second? Candor? Candor. Um, you guys don't know who, what Candor is, do you? Mm-mm. Evan? Don't even know how to spell it. Uh-huh. Okay, so Candor. Okay, now we're going to Comic Land. Candor. With a K? It, with a K. K A N D O R. Candor is a miniaturized city in a bottle. Before Krypton, home of Superman, mm. was destroyed, Brainiac basically <laughs> miniaturized the city of Kandor to hold it for ransom, and it's been passed around ever since, and Superman's tried in many issues and ways to try to get unminiaturize them, but he's never been a ma- managed to. So Kandor is a Kryptonian city in a bottle with 
with thousands of, of miniaturized Kryptonians inside. Yeah, I think I did know about this. It's just um, I had forgotten. I so, I'd, rep- I'd pre- repressed it. <laughs> I did read a lot of those I, Superman I, I, comics because, because it marries the whole idea of like world in a bottle. That yeah, yeah. Dancing over and science fiction. So Kendall is always fascinating me because some versions of Superman have uh, this cousin have you know uh, Supergirl having come from Kandor at one point right. or, or was born there and moved before it got miniaturized so she's invested in getting them out and right. not to mention villains have stolen it so that Superman has to basically do what they want or you know something will happen to the people. Well that actually bottle. is connected uh, now that I think about it to the last, wasn't the last show we did uh, about these aliens from Mars who wanted to move to Earth? Yes. What was that one Martian- called? Uh, Martians coming clouds. clouds. That's right. Martians coming clouds. And what did they want to do? They wanted to, uh, you know, just build themselves little platforms to live on the ocean. Um, so if, if Candor, uh, I assume most of the time it's on Earth in the bottle, right? Usually if Superman has possession of it, it's sitting in his fortress of solitude. Yeah. Right. If not that, then. Lex Luthor or sure. Brainiac or somebody else. But somewhere flying Earth. around Earth at some point. Yeah. Um, if if Kandor was ever decanted. <laughs> and put um, to a regular size, yeah. It, it, then it, it would be, be a city full of immigrants, right? Yes. And uh, that would be traumatizing for the whatever humans were nearby because they'd be, it, it'd be it'd worried be, about their status a, and all that stuff. Oh, absolutely. Because one, one immigrant, you know, like it, the Japanese, it, they're not resentful of one guy coming from, you know, Mexico or Canada. That's, a, that's interesting. But when you get a whole city full of them, that is trauma, right? Japanese uh, immigration policy is, you know, basically nobody. You can't come. And that is because they are kind of xenophobic, right? So here we've got a, a snow globe stolen from this planet, taken to Earth not to open it up, but rather to hold his ransom. Um, but that's actually only part of the things that are in that briefcase, right? So he pulls out the staplers and paper clips and if you watch the movie uh i think it was a 2013 short film um he's got like a pen that opens up and makes itself bigger and all sorts of little gimmicky futuristic desk stuff right tchotchkes wait, wait, it's, it's office supplies both office in the movie supplies and, and and in the thing which goes to hold the whole idea of the, the snow globe yeah so this is actually i think a theme that's sort of hidden in a lot of other philip k dick stuff the most obvious being paycheck because the whole premise for paycheck is ridiculous and awesome, right? A guy goes away to work. He works under contract. When he comes back, his mind has been wiped. He goes to get his pay and it's a bag full of crap, right? Like an old pay stub and a key and a, you know, a receipt for breath mints or whatever. (laughs) And, He's like, what the hell is this? I, I, I was supposed to get paid in big cash, you know, cause some people do. They go away and work, uh, for, you know, six months and it's, you know, they're writing off that part of their life, but they get a big paycheck out of it. And his paycheck is garbage. Well, it turns out that 
there's a secret meaning behind all of this stuff, right? That each of these things is from a time scoop and it'll allow him to unlock the secret of what's actually going on in his hidden memory, right? His, his mm-hmm. missing memory. So that's a great idea for a story. It's a pretty bad movie. Um, but the reason it's bad is because it's such a weird little <laughs> fiddly little concept. But I can see this is, you know, Philip K. Dick walks into a room and says, huh, that's a bunch of weird stuff on that desk. I wonder if it has secret meaning. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, of course, it doesn't, right? A snow globe isn't that deep. It is like you were saying, Paul, it's, it's a way of, uh, momentary escape. And it also keeps the papers from flying off the desk when it's a hot summer, right? So it's not yep. it's not that deep, but um, here, uh, Evan, you were comparing this to the uh, nuclear bomb, and I guess that's sort of implied. Um, they say destruction, and there's a flash of light, and the way they act like it's going to blow up, um, although that's not exactly what happened. Um, it is connected to the nuclear, and then you were saying it was it was also connected to the Cold War. And I was thinking, no, no, it's not the Cold War. It's still World War II. Um, is, is stability at all about World War II? Because I've, I've been reading those really short um, ones he wrote during World War II. Well, stability is more like a, a... If I were to categorize this in Philip Dick's work, I would say stability is like one of these fragile dystopias. That he tends to create, like a souvenir, I think, is one I of the ones like you mentioned. Orwell creates the the, the unbreakable dystopia, mm. and Philip Dick's dystopias are always like, in the end, really fragile. Mm. One guy working within the system is able to like break it down, right? Like Variable Man, or what? Or man shaped, or or paycheck, even right? Yeah. Getting the secrets out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, that's, that's a connection I saw that I, I, I finally grokked when I, when I reread this story because it's a, it's kind of a weird thing to have like a, or like, you know, he has a story, um, called War Game, I think it's called, where it's, it's just a family playing a Monopoly. <laughs> and he realizes that it's yeah. an alien invasion, right? Um, so if you take the mundane and you make it fantastic, which is something that kids have to do when they're, you know, running around looking for toys, this stick, it's a sword, right? <laughs> this rock is a grenade. Look out for the pine cone grenade, right? Like that's just sort of normal boy stuff, right? Um, so he's, he's somehow reaching into that, but there's also this, um, frame. And the frame, to me, I think it's, 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 it's what makes the story, uh, sort of work as a story. But I don't, I think it's stupid, the, the outer frame. What did you think, Marissa? What do you think of this framing device? Um, dislike. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't really like it. I also don't really like twist stories, like when they're old. It's like very neat. It's very neat, right? It's yeah. a little too neat. Um, I, I, I like that it, it, it sort of doubles back on itself. Um, but ultimately, that's actually what screwed me up in uh, trying to understand the story. It's like, why is he doing this? Right? Why is he, why is he got, we start with basically it's a bunch of people on a plane, right? 
They're on a plane. They're taken off the airport. They're in the air. And then the plane is forced back down, right? And this happens in real life. I don't know if it happened to Philip K. Dick. Um, they have to land for an emergency or the cops come on board the bus looking for a shoplifter right? <laughs> and they scrutinize you. Um, and then, uh, they go back on their way and then we get the, the inner story and then we come back to the frame. So it's a standard writing technique. Um, but my, I, I just can't get over the fact that these are supposed to be, I mean, they're supposed to be, they are spies, right? But they're not they're pretty prof- bad spies. They're they very not like professional it. spies, right? I mean, they no, they they actually they, me, so they, execu- <laughs> they execute the the job perfectly, right? But when <laughs> they have like no operational control, right? It's like as soon as they finish the job, they're driving away from the the bank heist, and they see some guy on the bus and. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, they say, like hey, what's in that bag? Oh, this is the money we stole from the Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if this is a, if this is a, a the CIA, this <laughs> the like super incompetent, uh, recruitment, they just picked like three doofuses. And one of them sort of even says, you know, hey, we should probably shouldn't be telling this guy that. I think it's Mara says, you know, uh, we're not far enough away yet or something, right? If they were then, just and they tell it for no reason as well, like there's yes, no, and that's, there's no leverage they're trying to use or anything. It's just like we're all on the same team, right? Is what they're saying. Yes, because we're from the same place, right? We're all Earthers. <laughs> so that 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 I think is the very worst aspect of the story. But um, and this is something I think that really I twigged into after reading it, not for today, but um. In between now and, you know, 2017, when I first heard Evans, or maybe even before that, I don't know. Um, Evan, this is, this is one of the things that, um, you should have picked up on. I am really worried about stuff like this. So let's just go right back to the opening. It says, uh, so this is the editorial introduction. It says, Stark Terror ruled the inner flight ship on that last Mars Terra run. So Mars Terra, you know, is dashed and inner flight. And that's actually in the story, right? In the first line, attention, inner flight. Like, what is that? It sounds like inter, international flight, right? But inner, like inner solar system. It, we, we never learn what that is, right? That's just weird. Um, and then Mars Terra. I get that. That's between Mars and Terra. And then it says for the black clad lighters were on the prowl and the grim red planet was not far behind. So I think that that part is less important, but um, what the hell is a lighter? It's L-E-I-T-E-R, right? And you know what that is? Uh, I'm thinking like gold lighters from World That's War II. That's exactly what it is. Nazis. A gal lighter yeah, or district light, district leader, right? Yeah. These are the Nazis. The reason they're black clad is they're, they're looking like the SS. Right? What do they do? They come on the ship with their, with their guns and they're like, we aren't going to kill you today, but three of you are traitors or something, right? And, or spies. And then when we get down to the planet, uh, and they're doing their covert, um, red, red skinning themselves, whatever that is, uh, they paint their skins red, 
and they dress up as locals. If you notice how they dressed up, they're wearing shorts. <laughs> um, it made me th- it made me think that they're like lederhosen. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and um, and then they go into the city, and there's a couple of black clad lighters uh, walking uh, by just as they're about to disperse and go plant their triangulator devices. Um, and they're saying, ah, did you see the woman? <laughs> he says, yes, she was very attractive. And I think the breasts get mentioned. Um, and then, uh, we never see them again, but there are these figures of fear, right? And they run the world. And in fact, we find out that there's a half a dozen or so of them inside the crystal crypt, inside the, uh, little glass tomb. And that those are half their leaders. So I think these are, this is Nazi imagery. Pretty sure that it's, it's like that. And, yeah, right. and, and so we're supposed to be on the side of these earthers, aren't we? Yeah, we're supposed to be. Yeah, yeah we are. I never to be. felt I was on the side of them because they're so stupid, right? But uh, yeah. because we're seeing it from their point of view, we're supposed to be on their side. And the other guys sound scary. It doesn't say they have, you know, death's head on their uniform cap or anything like that. But they are, um, they're a council, right? So these are uh, like SS guys. These are definitely, um, Nazis. Stormtroopers. Yeah, well, no, the soldiers there are stormtroopers, but the, the word lighter is like, it means leader. It also means ladder, right? It's, it's the Nazi party, uh, ranking system. And there's like a gal lighter is like a provincial, uh, leader. And that's actually the first one we get, right? And then there's other kinds of lighters going right up to just under, uh, you know, Hitler. Yeah, what what what, the, what this Martian in disguise kind of reminds me of is the um, is the character from from that uh, bleh, that that the um, the movie with the uh, Nazis and what's his name? I'll care now. Now I had a brain freeze. Um, it's a lot of movies. Yeah, I know. I, I know it's a lot of <laughs> movies. It's it's it's, it's the, the Quentin Tarantino movie. Which one? Um, oh, um, the one um, that's fake. Kill one Hitler. With the Nazis. Right. Right, okay. that one. Whatever one that's called. Inglorious Bastards. Inglorious Bastards, Bastards, that's right. Right. So it, it reminds it remind it reminds it reminds me of the character from Inglorious Bastards because Yeah. He's, he's, yeah, he's, no, he's it's, got it's, the same sort of like he's doing this interview thing. Swagger about, about about the character because because he's so because he insinuate I mean um oh he actually actually I just looked up he's not he's not a guy he's a Stardenfuhrer Hans Landa. Stand, standard, right? Standard leader. Fuhrer is another word for for leader. leader. But yeah, but that same sort of like he's because he's kind of playing with these guys because he knows because we find out by the end of the thing he knows that they did it. He's just trying to figure out. He's just figuring out the how and what happened to the city. He knows they're guilty of sin, kind of like Hans Landa is kind of like plays with plays with the mouse, but he just wants to get more information out of it. Uh, so, kept, so until I saw the movie, I kept seeing I kept seeing Christoph Waltz in this movie. Oh, you were thinking Nazis already. So uh, yeah. I want to I wanna just give you some, like, 
because it, it it is really striking. If you read these stories in isolation, right? You you're you're seeing them outside the magazine. You don't see all the things that are going around, right? So the reason this this story I think got sent to Planet Stories is not because um it was written for Planet Stories, but rather it was written for a market that included Planet Stories, right? Um Philip K. Dick is reading science fiction. He sees it and he says, I can do that. And so he gives them something that could sell. Then his agents send it to a bunch of people, or maybe he submitted this one himself. Um, and then somebody buys it. But uh, that's just the context for this particular story within the magazine. It's not in the political context. So when, when you're reading those very early Philip K. Dick short stories that he wrote for the newspaper during World War II... Uh, what you see is endless news stories about recruitment and deaths and uh, where the people are moving. And then all the domestic stuff like victory gardens and um, this is permitted and then there's a restriction on this thing. Right? It's embedded in the war in World War II. And so this is when he's a kid. I think it's very important. But but um, like that word gauleiter, right? It's something we think about as sort of something we'll see in a movie with Quentin Tarantino's playing with characters, right? A Stardatenfuhrer is like a fairly high rank. But on the granular level of regular people, the way most people interacted with with the Nazi party in Germany is uh, really horrible. It's basically, there's these things called block lighters or... uh, yeah, block, and what they are is they're a block warden, right? Their job is to disseminate the Nazi propaganda on a literal block in a city, like 60 house, 60 to 80 households, right? And they go around and they collect money for, you know, winter relief, or they go around and they hand out flyers saying, you know, this is uh, the news that you need to know about, or you need to one of the most insidious ones imagine this um when the nazi and they're nazi officials like they're literal nazi party members right they will come to your house knock knock and say we are holding a rally you need to hold three or four people in your house for the night because there's going to be a lot of rally, there's going to be a rally in the street and their job and their position in the party only improves by how good they are at pushing this stuff out. But then there's this other thing where they keep notes on all the families and say, you know, this one's uh, not very patriotic. And uh, he didn't show up to work on time. He may be a, you know, a bad person. (laughs) And so on a a, a very granular level, this idea of a lighter in Germany would have been really horrible. And they use it like a Basically, it's a, um, it's like a, a class, uh, snitch. So Mm -hmm. if you're in school and there's a, you know, the teacher goes out for a minute and little Johnny says, Hey, look at that squirrel and goes up to the window. (laughs) And then when the, when, uh, the teacher comes back and the kids run, rush, rush back to their desk, little Sally will say, uh, maybe not while you're there, but he'll inform the teacher, right? That's the job of the lighter, 
is to enforce propaganda, snitch out other people, um, yeah. and work their way up the system. Snitch culture. It is, it, it, and it, yeah. it, it, it's rewarded, right? Because it has the official violence of the state behind it. And so when we see what I think is the best part of this story is that central vision of them, you know, dressing up into the local costumes. And I think that he does nice job with the giving us the flavor of the city and the people. Um, and they join a caravan, right? And they go and into the city. And a little bit about the village they came from being a shithole. Right, uh, yeah, a pig. Well, pig's that's a really interesting part sty? of the story, you guys. It's the... Like, they seem, like, the leadership here seems to be very technically savvy. Yes. And they seem to be very high tech, but the population is, like, they're, like, peasants. It's, like, medieval peasants almost, almost bronze they, 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 Yep. The way the city is described, I'm thinking, he's, this, like, almost this a man, Sumerian city or something. This, this man has never shaved his face with a sharpened stone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, 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 there's definitely a... There's definitely a very strange hierarchy in this Martian thing between the the elite who have very advanced technology and 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 the local peasantry who are living as you said Bronze Age sort of uh, existence, which is a which begs a lot of questions. Like, how did Mars get that way? Well, that's the thing. So uh, I'm going to read this section here where I think this is why Evan was talking a lot on his podcast. You were talking a lot about Babylonians, uh, Sumerians, right? An ancient sun-baked city, a city set in the Middle East of a oh, sorry in the middle of a wasted plain, beyond groves of dead trees, a city seldom seen by Terrans, but a city and cities all capitalized here, studied on maps and charts in every war office on Terra, a city that contained for all its ancient stone and archaic towers the ruling group of all Mars, the Council of Senior Lighters. Black-clad men who governed and ruled with an iron hand. The senior lighters, twelve, fant- twelve fanatic and devoted men, black priests. But priests with flashing rods of fire, lie detectors, rocket ships, intraspace cannon. More, m- many more things than Terran Senate could only conjecture about. The senior lighters and their subordinate provincial lighters, or province lighters, Eric, and Eric is spelled E-R-I-C-K, if you're only listening to it. Um, that's the more German way of spelling Eric, right? Um, Eric and the two behind him suppressed a shudder. Right, so they are entering a city that's, you know, it's like the scene in uh, one of those Indiana Jones movies where uh, Indiana Jones ends up in Berlin. I don't know, Last Crusade, right? Um, and he accidentally bumps into Hitler. He's surrounded by, you know, Nazi party r- ralliers. And, uh, he's holding a book that <laughs> Hitler, Hitler thinks that that's his, um, his book. So he signs the inside of it. It's like, it's like, oh, they're, you know, deep in enemy territory. This is, you know, the most high security place on the whole planet. And so they're, 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 really equipped they sneak in they do all their job and then we have this outer frame where they're just like you know like yeah we did i guess we shouldn't tell you but we're going to anyways so that's that's what's so ridiculous about the story the fact that these nazi have planted thatcher right that's his name 
spelling's a little uh, unusual. It doesn't have the mm-hmm. extra T. Um, but I was thinking about that name too, and guess what? It makes sense. Philip Dick's a real smart guy. A Thatcher, we think, is a person who, uh, you know, makes roofs, right? By weaving together, I don't know, straw. Um, and that's where the name comes from. But what does a Thatcher do? Makes a cover. Right? He's actually a Martian. He's actually wearing white skin or black skin or whatever it is. White face, I guess it is. Right? He's not, in the, in the movie adaptation, he has this really, the actor has a really fake beard and I'm like, oh my god, that beard is so fake. <laughs> and then when he actually goes to rip it off, it's, oh, it's a little more legit because it's supposed to be a fake beard, right? And underneath we see the red skin. Now, I think that they made a mistake in that movie. Um, I think that they made them a- like literal aliens, right? They are Martians from Mars. Whereas I think in this story we're reading here, this is a, supp- these are supposed to be humans who emigrated to Mars long ago. Like this yeah. is set in the far future, yeah. right? But, but, but there's kind of indication in the story that there's old stuff on Mars that might predate the humans. At least I think I at least that's the, the impression mm-hmm. I got. So it's kind of, it, it, yes, they're Martians, but they're almost like Martians in the sense of almost like Ray Bradbury human Martians who have kind of inherited all the stuff on Mars and now made it their own. And now they want to be free of Earth and they've turned, they've turned industrial techno fascist as a result. And so Earth strikes back by trying to miniaturize the city and. It, we we and the war's on. Yeah, so the, that yeah, that's what does this all the time though with this uh, these colonists, you know, later turning against Earth. Yep, I mean it, it's a Did sort of like a, it times. it's a sort of standard theme in science fiction. You know, right now Elon Musk's trying to make a Mars colony or whatever. Um, hey, here's the plan, guys. We're all going to move to Mars. And then we're going to have a rebellion and a fight against Earth. Won't well, that be a good idea? <laughs> like it, yeah, it's no, no, I, I, yeah. Well, I, I want to because I'm thinking about this. I want to read this for a second. Half sure. an hour passed. They neared the city. The wall growing as they walked, rising higher and higher until it seemed to blot out the sky itself. A vast wall, a wall of eternal stone that had felt the wind and sun for centuries. So yeah, so they kind of, kind of like these Martian immigrants from Earth have basically just taken over some previous civilization and made it their. Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't know that that's the case. I think it might be that the humans emigrated to Mars so long ago, and this I don't is get, set. I don't, a, I don't get the sense that this is set that far, so far in the future, because Phil K. Dick stuff is generally not set. I agree. I agree with you. Although the technology here is is fairly high, it only takes a. It's going to take them a, uh, an hour to get from Mars to Earth, right? So it's it's. Is there anything in there about? them coming from Earth? Like, why are we assuming? Well, the reason I'm I'm thinking that is because all they have to do to look like Martians is paint their skin and put on a costume, right? But maybe the Martians were first and Earth was settled after. Uh, That's entirely possible, too. Which sounds like Omni-Lignal all of a sudden. Yeah, no, it's entirely possible. But here we've got two two societies, right? And I I was just... um, I I set my... uh, my phone to play an audio drama and when i wake up in more whenever i wake up um in the morning in this case um it had gone through like 
I don't know, several hours of show. And I was suddenly listening to uh, a history of the Suez Crisis. Um, so Suez Canal in Egypt, right? And they were talking about how uh, and how it was connected to the EU and the Economic uh, Union of Europe, right? And you think, oh, that's unconnected. But actually, it's not. So in the 50s, um, what what was happening was the British Empire is sort of mm, giving way, right? And the American Empire is on the rise. The British, they take control. They seize Suez from Egypt, which Egypt had seized from them, right? Um, well, the British built it, yeah, with Egyptian labor, right? And it's on their land. And it's not, as part of a, you know, as part of the global empire, Egypt is not a part of the Commonwealth, right? It's not a colony in the normal sense. It doesn't have that connection to Mother Britain. So what, why are the British there? It's to control trade. And ultimately, what is this story about? It's about financial position. So if you go right back to the end, and it's talked about in the middle, uh, well, uh, at the beginning as well. Uh, Mars will have to do what Terra asks, Erickson said. Now Terra will be able to make her commercial demands felt. Maybe there won't mm -hmm. even be a war. Perhaps Terra will get her way without fighting. Still smiling, he put the globe back into the briefcase and locked it. Quite a story, Thatcher said. What an amazing process, reduction of size. So... Evan, you, on your podcast, you were talking about how this is actually a really interesting technology. You could, like, preserve cities from war. You could, and, and I thought those are all really interesting. Like, you were talking about how you could take a whole library and reduce it down. This is what, uh, a lot of my scans are uh, these days are microfilm, right? Somebody took a whole book and photographed it, put it all on microfilm, and now that those are scanned, we can, you know, print it out again and make something that was tiny big. So that's an amazing and awesome technology. You know, a CD or a DVD or a hard drive, thumb drive can control, you know, can contain the, the important contents, not that physical paper and ink on a piece of paper, but the important contents, the data, the information, the images that is massively smaller than what it originally appeared as. That's really cool. And what are they using it here for? Ransom. But they're not just ransoming, like, a, a car. They're ransoming the leaders of this country, but more importantly, all the people in that city. Right. And that so how are we supposed to be on these people's side when technically there is no war yet, right? We're, we know war is just around the corner. But this is what the Japanese did, right? That we're supposed to hate them so much for. The sneak attack, right? A stab in the back. They didn't declare war before they attacked Pearl Harbor. How dare they? Right? That's what got all the Americans in favor of the war, is, you know, what what's happening in Europe? Yeah, yeah, that's bad. You know, Germany shouldn't be invading Poland Shouldn't take the Sudetenland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we got stabbed in the back, a sneak attack. And what did the humans in this story do from Earth? <laughs> they literally, you know, what they thought was the, the Nazis here, blew up their city, right? Their capital. 
or at least one of their capitals, their secret cities that they don't let the regular Earthers into. And what's it all for? It's for interplanetary trade. Or another way of putting it is like, it's, it's like, uh, the British and the Americans and the Japanese and, uh, the Germans going into China and saying, yep, we're going to take this port and you have to trade with us. Like, well, that's not, <laughs> you know, that's not fairness. That's not goodness. That's, that's badness. So even though these humans from Earth are justifying their action because now we're putting Earth in a better position, the only thing that I think about what's going on here is it's very ambiguous. We're not supposed to like the black-clad lighters who rule with an iron fist. But they have a council, at least, at the top. It's not one guy, right? It's not a supreme baddie. Oh, yeah, but what's what's the leadership on Earth? It's a Senate. It's a Senate. So it seems like these are mirror images here. And that's, I think... I I don't think... Both sides are just are despicable and we have no one to root for except for the except for the people caught in the middle uh, the people caught yeah. in in the little globe maybe so well, this is why that, that was, too, yeah the average person gets, yeah gets screwed. go for it marissa oh this is what i was disappointed with with the um the short film because i feel like if you have a big budget and you're you're making an adaptation like stay close to the text mm-hmm. is awesome but in this case when you've got like a short film when you can be a bit more creative I really thought that they would take that way more interesting angle that you're talking about now, Jesse, and like do something with that. But they mm-hmm. they um, doubled they, down on the like black clad Nazi. These guys are the bad guys. Yeah. And these are the good guys stealing the city and holding all these people hostage. And there's like no nuance there at all. Like, yeah, it's an it, interesting it, idea that could be explored a little bit more. And they, I don't know <laughs> that you can make most. I mean, most most philokatic stuff doesn't adapt well. I think to film no, it doesn't. <laughs> I, I mean it's kind of keep on proving it they like, keep it's like evidence after evidence yeah <laughs> i actually felt uh i was thinking a little bit about one of those philip k dick um tv show adaptations where they had um uh some telepath wandering around with the cops you remember that one i can't remember which yeah. one that's supposed to be in it with the mobs of oh, people like yeah it was an adaptation of a of a short story, but it was that it, the hood one. Yeah, the yeah. the hood maker, right? Yeah. So that right. actually makes. I think that this is connected to that one in that kind of the the block warden, right? That that political guy down down the street, and also the other thing that is in here that is in a lot of other Philip Gadiak stuff, including you know his most famous "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?" is the test, right? Right. I'm kind of interested in that. It's actually a character, the box, <laughs> because it doesn't say the same thing every time. And it says, the truth. <laughs> it says, he was telling the truth. Or, yes, mm. that is the truth. <laughs> so it actually is like a little guy inside the box or something. Right? The box I is a guy. It's like so easily pulled as well. Like, <laughs> um, it kind of reminds me of that thing, like when you're kids and you, you know, like you pinwheel your arms and you hit your brother or sister. And right, you're like, I didn't right. hit them. I just was like pinwheeling my that's arm right. and they walked into it. It's that's like- <laughs> right. <laughs> that's actually how cops justify stuff too, right? Yeah. <laughs> his, his head connected somehow with my baton. Yeah. He shouldn't have put his head there. Right? Oh my God! So I'm telling the truth. I didn't hit them. I That's didn't, right. I didn't destroy the city. 
and that's and that's the thing is you know we're told they didn't destroy the city um but if if we got out a microscope and looked down in there is it going to be like candor right is it going to be little people running around doing their business where where yeah are they okay i don't think so <laughs> think of all the uh, you know the walk up to the city which actually is quite nice i i think the writing in the center of here the story um, with the description of their joining the caravan is really good. Um, Definitely. I mean, I could just read s- some of that out if you like, but um, I was just thinking like there's uh, these animals that are not, you know, they're not horses, they're not camels, right? So they're they're somewhat alien. Hoofers. Hoofers, is that what they're called? Yeah. Awesome. Um, that That's really good. And so... Spending that time in the middle, getting to the city, maybe even doing the the job, that is all golden. But ultimately, the problem with this as an adaptation is there's a core flaw, which is, you know, they just tell <laughs> when they should have operational yeah. security. And it's that's stupid. Now, I think maybe it seems less stupid if you're young, like... <laughs> Because, you know, no, when it, when you did some crime, idiot. yeah, oh, when you do some crime idiot. and you tell all your friends, um, you don't know that you're going to get ratted out to the cops, right? Because you're young. Right, you haven't had that experience. In the, in the scene, there's all this tension around it, though. Like, they're acting like they're really nervous about telling. And it's like, well, you don't have to. No one's making you tell. That's right. If it was, If they were kind of like drunken idiots or... You know, it would be more believable if they were, like, childlike and naive, but they seem really aware that they shouldn't be telling them. So that. I want to I point out why that th- this is in there. I think, it's, I think it's genuine. So, um, Paul, you mentioned Homicide Life on the Street, right, which is based on a book, yep. which is based on a, a year spent uh, with the homicide, in, homicide oh, unit Baltimore. in Baltimore, uh, David Simon, um, <laughs> Evan and I have some thoughts about him. <laughs> but um that show is based on reality. And one of the things that they talk about is how, yeah, we have to read them their rights, but that doesn't stop them from, you know, they don't use them. <laughs> they are read their rights, and then we have, like, a sales pitch. And the sales pitch works every time. And I got to tell you, the sales pitch works every time up here, too. If you are uh, a person who's confronted by the cops, there is immense pressure upon you just from the uniform, usually black, right? Just from the sitting in the squad car, just from the fact that, you know, they're a human being and they're asking you questions to talk. Mm-hmm. And Philip K. Dick is not, he, he, he's like a lot of the weird writers I like to read. He's got some like mental problems. Like, his life is difficult. Um, so, you know, when he was in university, he went into ROTC for like 10 minutes, right? <laughs> because he couldn't handle the gun, the, the, the fake gun that they were, you know, handing him. And he got yelled at, and that was very traumatizing, and he couldn't finish, right? Um, H.P. Lovecraft famously couldn't finish high school because of a nervous breakdown. <laughs> so these guys are really sensitive. And that the tests that appear over and over uh, are stressful, and being confronted by the cops are stressful, right? And all you can do 
if you're one of these people, and I know because I've felt the pressure too, I've mostly not been under the direct pressure, but I've been there when it's been happening and I can see it. It's very easy to crack and just say anything other than lawyer. That's what you should say. Lawyer. I want my lawyer. I'm not talking to you. I want a lawyer. That's all you should say, right? Because the cops are not there to serve you, generally. They're there to process warrants, and they're there to arrest people. Their job is not to help you. Now, it could be that you could ask a cop for directions and not get the shit kicked out of you or be thrown in jail. That's possible. Um, And hopefully that's most people's interaction most of the time. But most of the time, when I've been in experience with cops, it's they're trying to entrap you uh, speeding, or they're just trying to get you speeding, or they're going to try to, you know, see if you were involved in something so that they can arrest you. Their their whole thing is putting people in prison, right? So if you are confronted, you know, you're on a bus and notice that these people are not in charge of the ship, right? They're they're like passengers on a plane. You give up your ability to do anything the pilot says we're stopping right they stop and then the guy comes on and says hey i'm not here for most of you um i'm here for three spies and then they interview everybody and in the short film it's it's done very sinisterly like the guy punches people but i think Mm -hmm. this is actually not the way It, it should be more like uh hans landa from uh, Inglorious Bastards, right? Where he's standing there and telling you things, and by the very authority of the uniform and the fact that he's standing and you're sitting, that you're under pressure. So th- the fact that operational security on a, a spies sent into a foreign country who successfully do a sabotage operation fail this test is just testament to how Philip K. Dick, you know, feels. <laughs> It's not testament to the actual way it works. But on the other hand, um, you know, and these coups are uh, attempted all the time. There was one in Venezuela last year, right? A bunch of mercenaries are sent in to try to assassinate or uh, start a whole incident, and they get arrested. They confess, right? It makes sense to confess. But in this case, there is the pressure is, hey, uh, what's in your briefcase? You can say, fuck mm-hmm. you. I'm not, I don't want to talk business. Let's, let's just drink. Right? <laughs> and Mara doesn't have to say, yes, you can follow me to the bar. Right? So all the, the pressure yeah. here is, it's very Philip K. Dick pressure. Not, not, and it's not real. But given all that, I, I still like the story, even though it's, it's fundamentally broken at that point, like that. Hmm. it's why it's not anywhere close to you know one of his best so this is one of those stories where like i don't care about um spoilers in general but i have some exceptions which is when the whole story like all all of its worth is based on this one revelation yeah 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 that's kind of what i feel like with this story where i think the first time i read it i enjoyed it a lot more Mm. And then this time, it just didn't really have anything in it for me because I was like, well, now that I know the reveal, which is kind of the, the neat trick in here, there's not really anything else that grabs my interest. 
Yeah, I, I, I'm interested in it for the themes and the fact that he's so stressed mm-hmm. out by seeing, you know, SS uniforms on film. It's not like he's confronted by the SS himself, but he's sympathizing when he goes to the movie theater and he sees the, you know, the new movie tone news and there's these SS guys burning books or, you know, uh, escorting people onto trains or what it's probably not a lot of videos of that, um, you know, that he would have seen. Um, the stress level is incredible, right? And mm-hmm. it's, it, it's just, it's just a fact that if, if I come up to you on the street and I say, do you know where the shopping mall is? You feel pressure to answer me. There's no legal requirement that you answer me, but you feel pressure. Now, if I'm wearing a black uniform and there's another guy with a black uniform and he's got a weapon on his belt, and he comes up to me and says, hey, what's in your bag? What am I going to do? I'm going to be freaked the fuck out. I'm going to comply. Because he has a weapon. He has the authority. He has another guy there. Right? The proper thing to do is to say, lawyer. (laughs) Right? But in most cases, if your bag doesn't contain anything you're worried about, you let it. And most people who have, you know something illegal in their bags usually some drug or you know open open carry of alcohol right Uh, open alcohol those people all give it up right there is no requirement that they give up that information but they do give it up what have you been drinking tonight right that's what they ask at the stops (laughs) and and my answer is I don't drink at all because I'm so freaked out about being asked that question and and lying Right? I don't, I literally don't drink at all because I'm so worried about being stopped. And I'm, I know about this problem. So that, that I think is what my takeaway from the story is. It's not the story itself. It's the, it's yeah. the logic of the building of the story. And like, oh, this is a real phenomenon that he's, he's going to. So. Yeah. I guess I should say the elements are interesting, but the, um, the story itself loses its entertainment appeal once that revelation is yeah no it's a it's one of his weakest stories and it's because of this exact problem um sorry evan you were going to say something no oh okay it's not even about drinking like when they pull you over for speeding i was gonna say they say you know how fast you're going right right yeah most people (laughs) say i was going a few miles over right so you just confess It's not, I know how fast you were going, and here's your ticket. It's saying, please confess, so that when Mm. I write this up, you're not going to dispute it, right? Yep. And if you answer... I was like, underage, trying to get into bars and stuff, um, with a whole group of friends, and like someone asks your age, and I would just give them my real age, and all my friends are like, why would you do that? Well, because there was a question, right? Yeah. And, and the question brings stress and this, and we are, you know, lying is not something that comes naturally. It's something you learn, right? Mm -hmm. It's something you develop. It's a stage of development. And then some people never get past that stage, right? That's their answers for everything is to lie, to make themselves look good. (laughs) It literally is a stage of development. Like, you know, you're one year old and something happens and you don't know about lies yet. And then at some point, you you uh, 
feel like you can blame the dog. (laughs) (laughs) Who knocked over the milk? Oh, the tail of the dog knocked over the milk. The dog can't, you know, doesn't even know how to talk. So (laughs) you win. Um, so that's the, that's the pressure that's in behind here. Now, um, I, I did send you guys some additional homework. Um, and, uh, since I gave it to you, I felt I needed to do it just in case it was important. I said, uh, it's probably not related. Did you all see that? It's a story called The Werewile of the Crystal Crypt. Yeah, I didn't get to that. I, 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 I took a look at the cover and wondered what the heck it, because it, it shows this woman in this giant tube. tube I it's a boob what tube. The heck is this? Hashtag boob tube. Because. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the, the, I mean, they. Women in test tubes is another hashtag tube. for it. Uh, it's a very, and it's not always women, but it's very often on the cover of science fiction stories. And it's also in lots of comics, right? But, 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 but you know, the, I mean, the, the illustration inside, you know, with that, uh, the, what the, the Melnick one on page 107 is mm-hmm. a pretty nice illustration, yeah, I must yeah, say. Yeah, it's nice. And, uh, there's some crashing city, you know, there's a evil looking dude, there's a lady, that lady, um, where she says, I, I underestimated him. Um, that's the same lady as on the cover. So I read this story, or I had my mom read it to me. And um, it actually starts that's off... It's just strange that your mom read these stories to you. Well, this is what you do if you uh, have a family that loves you, Paul. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Damn. <laughs> it's a way of socializing with somebody who you need to spend time with because it's a joke. To me. <laughs> it's just not a thing. My my family don't read to me that full don't worry. Most people don't <laughs> read. True story, right? I, 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 learned, I learned how to read and read for myself. I was like, my parents never read to me. What the hell is that? Uh, well, it's a way of enjoying a story together. Um, one one of the things you could do is you could watch a TV show together, right? Now that we did all the time. Yes, Reading I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of watching TV shows. We'll play a video game together. That absolutely you can do, but most people will play computer games and most people will not read. Right? So if you happen to have someone in your family who likes to read, is a good reader, and, uh, you are a guy who's associated with audio (laughs) and it's not available on audio, you can ask your mom to read it for you and she will. That's adorable. It is really nice of her to do. so she was I mean, not a fan of this story. It reminds me of a Harry Turtle story where a guy goes back in time to try to steal a manuscript that no longer exists, exists, but follows the two characters in that timeline. What they do together for fun, they read they read the Iliad to each other for mm-hmm. fun. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, no, this is a real thing. Cool. This is a real phenomenon. You see it with, uh, you know, people who are both readers who are couples. You see it with... Um, it's it's basically the what we did for entertainment before uh radio before um tv before film if you want you know if you don't live in the city you live in the country and you live in a house with other people you can read uh you know separately or you can read together and a lot of stuff is actually designed to be read aloud right most good writing mm-hmm. is designed to be read aloud. And when you read something, I mean, reading Oscar Wilde is really funny. <laughs> Everybody enjoys it, right? Um, and listening to an audiobook need not be a, a solitary experience. In fact, you know, 
most most people's interactions i don't know if you know this are through the audio medium <laughs> most and most of it isn't heavy petting and uh you know uh scrubbing people's backs <laughs> it's just talking to one another and so if you can get somebody really uh good at uh, telling a story to put it on a piece of paper you can you can totally do this it is a, a thing it's not that weird <laughs> in any case um when we were reading my mom reading to me and me listening uh where while the crystal crypt it starts off pretty pretty well um it's an uh, you would really like the opening paul there's an archaeologist from earth who's headed to i believe it's mars might might be some other oh maybe it's alpha cygnus or something alpha centauri he goes to some planet to investigate for a university a uh, crystal crypt and when he gets there he goes through a basically a labyrinth fight some some alien monsters and then he finally unlocks the lady on the cover <laughs> um in the glass jar and she is if is that the metaphor <laughs> well it's unlock is in uh like you know a stage uh, in a video game basically right um anyways um uh if will were here he'd be really excited because uh this is sort of a retelling of she and if you look at the cover there, it says, for a hundred, oh no, for a million years she slept, Nuala of the Nekalad, roused at last to join the Outworlder against the Werewile of the Crystal Crypt. So, um, she's kind of in a Crystal Crypt, and then there's a, another guy who's basically the devil, um, and they fix up his spaceship with her amazing knowledge. She's been gathering knowledge while she sleeps. Uh, for a million years, she knows basically everything, and she's kind of like yep. a half. Um, yeah, because yeah, I was reading a little bit of this. You are a young race, but you Earthlings do come come up with some good ideas. Like, <laughs> yeah, so I, I see the she reference here as I'm reading through this. Well, book. yeah, she, and she, you know, she's immortal. She's young. She's um, very knowledgeable in magic and technology, right? So she uh, she fixes up his spaceship, and then they fly to a solar system where this bad guy is. And there's three planets, we're told. One is his his throne planet, one is his laboratory planet, and one is his arsenal planet. They land on the throne planet, and they uh, infiltrate his his uh, capital city, and then there's a, a Marvel boss fight at the end. You know, like how every Marvel movie ends with a really horrible CGI sequence with lots of trains punching and <laughs> flying through skies and sparkles. You know, the the worst part of every Marvel movie is the end, right? Where there's the big boss fight. I like all the other stuff pretty much. The boss fights. Oh my God. So boring. <laughs> Anyways, um, this, this story really sort of is great writing. It's almost Clark Ashton Smithy quality. He does a lot of transformed language and then it rapidly deteriorates about four or five pages in. <laughs> and it it just when our hero our heroine starts talking she she sounds like she's half borg you know like uh, seven of nine <laughs> and half vulcan she's saying i don't have emotions and then she's screaming the next minute <laughs> and crying yeah <laughs> but she also has all the knowledge you know seven of nine ha- used to be a borg so she knew everything about the delta quadrant or yeah the delta quadrant but but I had to read to the end, and I'm disappointed here because apparently 
she gets damseled because all her knowledge gets wiped out of her and she becomes Indeed. only only a girl. It's like She's suitable for marriage now. Yeah, no. That's 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 bad. That's <laughs> see, they they basically damseled her and basically protagonized her. That's not cool. That's not Pathmark Smart. <laughs> it's it's pretty funny stuff. Um, so I, I was actually finding it quite amusing. My mom was, uh, this is such bad writing. And I, I agree that it has a lot of bad writing in the middle. But why am I bringing this up? It's got the title, The Crystal Crypt, in it, right? Where while the Crystal Crypt. There's no reason, there's no explanation for why it's where while, W-E-R, while, W-I-L-E. It's no, no explanation for that. Most of the things in here that are weird names, there's no explanation for that. There's a god named Grok. It's G-R-O-C-K, not the other kind of Grok. Um, and there's lots of great vocab words that are made up, but they're, they never pay off. So those are all bad things. However, there's a scene that's almost identical and beautifully identical uh, in both stories, and that is the dressing up in native costume and joining a caravan going to a city. So, I don't know that Philip K. Dick read this story, but he very well could have. Um, based on just the fact that the the title exists, he might he probably had this issue. It's from 49, I think, of um, Planet Stories. Planet Stories was a market that he sold a lot to. His first, uh, first sale that was published was... Uh, in Planet Stories, the Beyond Lies the Wub. So he was definitely studying the market. Um, and um, it's got the title. So that that scene and, is and, not and, worth and reading also, the whole 17-page story, but it's actually, it's it's interesting. It's, it's like what I'm saying. It's the context of reading the story in context. It makes a lot more sense to think about it as... A response to uh, the stress of of seeing Nazis it's, it's on screen. Got, it's got that cyclopean. I'm reading this. It's got that cyclopean look to the city that that Dick has. Oh yeah. Known. It's also in this. So so he. I think I think your I think your theory has merit that he might have been influenced by the story and is responding to it. I, I'm I, I I'm confident. Better. I'm confident that he was reading Planet Stories before he was published in Planet Stories. We don't have a lot of letters that say you know I was reading Planet Stories right. But he was, he was being published, uh, many of his stories are published in Planet Stories. Um, it's a, it's a market that he, he understood. And then as he gets into it, a lot of new, new magazines start up, right? So, um, if he can get in FNSF, which is the premier science fiction mag in terms of pay, um, great. He didn't see, he got one story in his whole 150 story writing career into Astounding. Imposter. That's the only one. And that's the one most people think of when they think of, you know, pulp science fiction magazines. So, it's not a strong connection, other than the no, title but, but, but and it, uh, scene. Kind of weak. Another weak connection I thought of as I was watching, as I was, as I read the story and I watched the thing is, I kept thinking of the Twilight Zone episode, and I think you know which one I'm thinking about. Which one? It's, will the real Martian please stand up? Hmm. That one sounds Do vaguely familiar. We have a bunch of people trapped in this like cabin in a snowstorm, and we know one of them is a Martian, and we don't know 
who it is. Mm. And the twist is that we have a Martians and a Venusian on in, in <laughs> they're both, they're both kind of interested in earth. It's like, so it's kind of like twist ending people. That's more like a Frederick Brown story. Yeah. He, he, he liked, yeah, it's he really, Frederick Brown, but he I really did a lot of that. Okay. You won't like, you will not like Frederick Brown, Marissa. <laughs> no, like, Oh yeah. Yeah, well, he's just, he, 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 most of his stories are like really short, like a page long or something, right? He, he did a couple novels, but, um, a lot of them rely on sort of a joke or a, a little oh, twist okay, at the end. Yeah. I'm a little allergic to that. I, I get it. I get it. Uh, I think <laughs> of them as palate cleansers between bigger stories, you know? Mm-hmm. Which is a way to go. But I actually, in thinking about the two stories side by side, those, those, the scenes of dressing up as a native, you know, going into as a spy into a foreign city, alien city, and joining a caravan to get into that city, um, that is actually, um, it's, it's fun, right? It's, it's what a lot yeah. of planet stories is about. It's about this, it's, uh, playing dress up and hide and seek. <laughs> and, um, and so the, I was invested in the in inner part of the story i but i can't i couldn't think of a way of telling this story um maybe maybe you just do it like this hey hey dad what's that that little snow globe you keep on your desk well son back when i was in the in the spy service and then he just tells a backstory and then the kid like at the end of the picks it up and shakes it and says dead bodies floating around in the water exactly yeah <laughs> i mean <laughs> maybe i just fixed the whole story it's like a horror story yeah like, that would be amazing of like a kid finding something just terrible <laughs> oh, he, I, I, I can pitch it to netflix or not netflix hbo max remember when uh mm -hmm. in uh when you guys all watched that watchman ad it's not wasn't an adaptation i don't know sequel series mm -hmm. Um, when, no, I actually watched that series. Oh, uh, well, it's, it's, it. it's both good and bad. It starts off with such promise and sort of devolves into a boss fight at the end, sort of. And we, it, there's a lot of weaknesses here and there, but it's really interesting. And one of the things we find is, uh, was Don Johnson. You all know who Don Johnson is? Actor. <laughs> He, I don't know. He was in Miami Vice. He was really cool in the 80s. So he, he plays the mentor, the cop mentor to our, uh, our heroine, um, superhero cop. Um, he's his boss. Uh, he is her boss. Um, and she's black and he's white, right? Um, and they're both on the same team, team blue. So they go to his house, uh, for a, like a dinner party. Right. And then she uses her, for some reason, she's using her snooper x-ray device to search his bedroom after he's murdered. Um, in the next episode or that night he's murdered. Um, so she's investigating and she goes into his closet and behind his closet, she opens a secret panel and there's like a KKK uniform, <laughs> you know, like, uh, it's the hood. He's a grand dragon or something. I was like, wow, what a, quite a way to end an episode, right? <laughs> so you got to tune in next week. That's the way I would do this story is the, the kid says, hey, dad, what's this little snow globe? And then at the end, um, 
we get the reveal that he's got the uh, black clad lighter uniform in the closet or something. Mm-hmm. Right? Dun, dun, dun. And uh, what, what does it all mean? It means that he he got it back and he's the Thatcher character and um, and uh, he used, he got it back but didn't, you know, restore it. He used it to yeah, improve himself in, within the the party and the, the evil wins. So that way it would be, you know, that the way I do it, but that doesn't show the stress, which is what I think was so important to Philip K. Dick is being stressed out by having a Voight comp test or having an IQ test, right? Which they do mm-hmm. when you join the army, right? They give you an IQ test. See if you are going to be, you know, doing the latrines or uh, calculating ballistics or whatever. What else you got, Evan? I uh, you've been quiet. Did you fall asleep? No, I'm here. I'm trying to think of anything. Well, I didn't do that extra homework. No, I didn't no. Do that extra homework. But uh, but just based on, you know, you you had a lot to. That was a long episode of your. I think it was like forty five minutes on the Crystal Crypt. Really? I think so. Let me see if I've got it. I I think now I don't remember everything I I, I worked on there, but. I think now what interests me most about this story is that just the the social hierarchy within the Martian society. Mm. How you have this super technocratic. It's really is it the Willie Gibson point that like we're already in the cyber or like technology is not evenly distributed, right? Yeah, it's it's kind of like that here because it seems Thatcher has no problem like adapting this technology. Like that's the the catch at the end, right? Mm-hmm. Twist. Mm-hmm. We'll just use this to to mess with Earth. Yeah, so that's where I was thinking. It, there's it, a lot it, of suggestions it, that they're they're really highly technical, but none of it trickled down to make the lives of the Martians any better. Well, not the people who live in the faraway villages who have to come and notice that that's part of the yeah. the thing. They have to come to the city to have their marriage performed, marriage. right? Because an official has to do it rather than than the um the local priest and i love the costume of the local priest he wears these gray robes that he never takes off and that he will be buried in (laughs) it's a really nice touch right um their costumes are awesome um (laughs) they do that in the animation but they don't do the gray robe priest very well so um that's in the short film Mm. but um I I think it's I think that is really the really interesting part is the fear of the you know this totalitarian style government, but um, our sympathies are supposed to be with these Earthers, right? The Terrans are we're all on the same team, and we we just want for you know to maybe even avoid a war where they'll just have to accede to our demands, right? But that's empire, Evan, <laughs> right? Yeah. When you go into some place and you say, yeah, you need to trade with us. And on our terms. And yeah, we'll give you this, uh, this, um, uh, morphine or poppy or whatever drug, but you need to give us gold. That's not trade. That's extraction, right? Um, so, uh, the other thing they're thinking about the, um, the, the, the village that's a pigsty and the description, one of the lighters, uh, says, these aren't, these aren't, uh, villagers. They don't stand, they stand up too straight, 
right? They're not cowed. They're not, um, and their, their nutrition isn't good enough, we're told. But one of the other lighters says about the girl that she's like, almost like good breeding stock, which is also very Nazi, right? Mm-hmm. Well, anytime you get the government involved in registering, uh, marriages, what's the point of that? It's not just to count people, right? It's to officiate and say this kind of marriage is not allowed. You are our, uh, you belong to us. And so, um, th- th- this is really heavily exemplified by the Nazis, right? They had official breeding programs and they would make people marry other people and produce babies for the master race. Really creepy. Philip K. Dick went the other way. <laughs> He's just shack up with every girl he wants to get into the pants of. <laughs> no official, no official program. Marry, marry all of them. No, no, no. He, he, he took, he took serial monogamy very seriously. He, yes, he, he did. Yes, he did. The girl slept. But he was also jealous, right? He was jealous of uh, their. Yeah. Yeah. He was worried about being cuckolded all the time. I mean, he wrote a story about that. <laughs> um, Beyond Lies and Bill. Yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> I got, and a few novels are influenced by this, too. It's fun stuff. So that's why um, it's worth reading, even though it's a very weak Philip Kinnick story, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I, I don't. I mean, it's not the. It, I mean, it's early dick, it's unpolished dick, it's... Wor- oh, God, the sun's bad. I don't know if it's, it's unpolished. Oh, it's, it's a lot better than the last it's novel we did. KD, but, but it's worth, it's worth, it, it was worth taking a look at it, and it got us to tie, tie in all these other things. Yeah, I... I got uh, to talk about Candor for the first time well, of this podcast, so, you know. I, I, I don't think it's unpolished. I think it's just as polished as he was able to do, given his... Like I think he worked Still on this a lot more than the last novel. What was the last novel we did? Oh yeah, um, Unteleported Man, aka Lies Inc. Right? Yeah. Lies Inc. was not had no polish at all. Right? That that was just stapled together. Not even I by think him. It's like he's like you he was saying, um, JC. Like he's just saying he's looking around at what's being published. He's like, I can do that. Yeah. He's kind of. It's got a little bit of his own. Honestly, and stuff, but yeah. it's not really Philip K. Dick yet. Where Wild, the Crystal Crypt got the cover, and it's a much worse story, um, mm-hmm. technically. Um, the writing in the center is horrible. <laughs> laughable. I thought it was a comedy. I'm I like, maybe this is supposed to be a comedy. But the tone, the shift, the tonal shift was too strong. I think it was just unpolished. And, um, and then, you know, it's got that stuff at the end where she, she, turned into a suitable bride by having her her superiority in mind wiped um yeah it's fun it's fun it's fun stuff though i i uh i gotta say i still like reading planet stories even when the stories are very weak this has been the sff audio podcast Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.
try to save me. I'm like, no, just no, okay, I can roll a new guy. No matter retconning, it just it just feels so frustrating that I I I might as well not have been there for for anything. You keep so, saying yeah. that phrase over and over again. But yeah. but the argument that I made I think is pretty damn good. If I don't no, get no, a chicken but, dinner, but, but, what do but, I get? But, a sad but, story. No, but yeah, but D and D is I mean, especially modern D&D is very much a party thing. And so if my character might as well not have been part of the party that session, that kind of... Notice you keep using that same phrase over and over again. This is the way you dig yourself into a hole that makes... I should be charging you by the hour (laughs) for counseling services. I took psychology. I took psychology. This is the psychology hour with Jesse. It would be, be like three or four hours. Um, wow! <laughs> not wow. no, not just for you. Just you don't you don't work things out. In the like, psychology love, minute. Feeling love here tonight. Feel the love tonight. See, you turned that into being an insult about you, when in fact it was not about you. You you you, you put yourself in a situation where you say, "It." What was the phrase you used? If my character hadn't been there, it wouldn't have mattered. Right. Right. But why are you looking at it in that frame? Um, you're, you're being goal oriented rather than fun oriented. I'll be right back. I, but I, I think this is <laughs> go get your laundry. We'll we'll solve your problems while I, you're not here. When I played, like, I don't know. I thought my I never had the same philosophy as. The, the DM, and when I was running a game, I didn't have the same philosophy as my players, so. Well, I'm interested in kind of the world building of it all, and, yeah. uh. Have, having something, uh, something fun and exciting happen. Yeah. Right? Uh, I mean, the, the mechanics are super uninteresting. Mm-hmm. Super duper uninteresting. I, all those saving throws and armor class calculations. <laughs> Oh my god, don't care. Yeah, Pathfinder was pretty bad because it was really complex, but what I liked about Pathfinder was like you there's so many different ways you could build your your guy. I mean, it was like infinite. Oh, so there was a I thought in D&D, at least like when I played when I was playing third what was it 5th edition D&D, whatever the newest one is. It was like there was only like it was just came out and there's only like a few classes and it was like Every you know, like the races were all pretty predetermined what they were like. Did you see? You much, saw much more free in how you created your your characters. I, I sent it to you that last night. Are you with us, Marissa? No. All right. Uh, I think she's not here yet. Uh, I'll check my. Uh, anyways, I was gonna say. Um, oh yeah, she's joining. Okay. Um. I sent you uh, sort of a analysis of that Conan comic. Um, I don't remember what the context was, but ba- uh, one of the things I noticed is like it has two random encounters in a twenty-page story. Um, that's not good writing. You don't random encounters aren't writing. <laughs> that's that's yeah. like random. It's like. Uh, no, that's not how you write a story. And yet people are saying he's the good writer. This uh Zub, Jim Zub. And I'm like, no, this is bad writing. Over and over, like just n- not understanding the character and 
because he has a sword and a fur diaper, he's supposed to be Conan. That's not what Conan is. It's I, random I encounter. Retrieve my clothes. There we go. I'll sort them later. We can podcast now. Oh, good. Well, if Marissa's here, she's muted. It says she's probably. I don't know. We're gonna wait till afterwards to deal with our issues. Oh, uh, oh, yeah. Oh, you wanna? Uh, what was what was the? Oh, yes, you were talking about um, Uyghurs. No, I. I the Uyghur, Uyghur uh, debunking. Uyghurs, I don't know if you're like invested in this discussion, but I have a coworker who is like basically a genocide denier. And well, I, I think we have to. I, I don't have, want to be on that. I just just so just we define weird. our terms. Like these expats in China who who like lick boots. <laughs> I can't. Boot tastes like it. it's like ice cream. His attitude is like, well, America. He just buys the Chinese propaganda. It's like, oh, America genocided the Indians, so you can't criticize us. Uh, like, so why that, are you owning? Why are you owning everything that America ever did? Yeah, you should um, own that. And so and it's like. Isn't that one of the first things your parents teach you? Is like two wrongs don't make a right. Uh well, most people most people go with the um uh my country right or wrong. Uh or what's the the bush line? I will never apologize for the United States no matter what the circumstance, I don't care. Right? And uh, most most of the time when I hear that phrase i forget the context the context was the united states accidentally shot down an airliner full of uh full of um civilians yeah right so first of all it's his framing right i will never apologize for the united states was it the united states who did that or was it uh you know a part of the united states the military Mm -hmm. right so if you frame it uh that way you get the patriotic yay everybody loves him right but uh, what you're really saying is, um, oops, <laughs> in a very patriotic way. I mean, I guess we're on different places on Twitter, but, you know, what I notice is there's a huge chunk of, like, the left. I, I mean, I, I, mean, yeah, like the, I don't trust the, those. The far left. I don't trust the that, people who claim to be the left. Think? Hello. Hello. Good morning. Because it's not America, right? It's as if only America can be an empire. No, so there, there are other video. empires. I watched this video, um, at least part of it. He's trying to debunk genocide in, in Xinjiang. YouTube. Um, and and it even said, like, oh, China ruled Xinjiang since the Han Dynasty or something. And it's like, who the fuck cares Like, if they, they, they ruled it 2,000 years ago? doesn't mean they're not committing genocide. Yeah, no, well, see... Uh, or why Why do we respect these claims? Like, I don't know. Like, why does that matter? I don't think that works with any other country. Do we, like, respect claims from 2,000 years ago? <laughs> wow. uh, but some of the Chinese get away with this. Yeah. And then the fact that leftists are... Defending this, it just seems bizarre to me. What what makes you say they're leftists? Because I uh, well, they 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 need a concrete example. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Well, so part of it that certainly is like a um, my party right or wrong. 
Yeah, it's, it's in this case, it's party right or wrong, not country. Yeah, yeah my ideology right or wrong. <laughs> Which is hilarious, because ideologies. Yeah. I don't know. So, I'm thinking too much. I've got this coworker that I just don't know if I can talk to. Why, why, why do you try and talk to your coworkers? Because. You're going to fix he's them? He's denying genocide. He's denying, like, now you could disagree with the UN definition of genocide, but what China's doing in Xinjiang certainly qualifies. Well, uh, it sounds like um, the kind of genocide we did in Canada uh to the natives, right? It's basically, yeah. you take them out of their families, you indoctrinate them, you sexually abuse them, you starve them, um, it, all in the hopes of uh, making take, taking the Indian out of the child, right? Um, yeah. Here, they're trying to, you know, it's so it is a kind of genocide, but it's not the normal one that most people think of, which is, you know, concentration camps that are just oven oven factories. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, it seems likely that that's happening, and um, but they're still doing that in the states too. <laughs> they're not doing it in the same same way, and I think we've got some of that happening in different parts of Canada as well. The north is very bad, but other places in in Canada are less bad. Whatever. How's Marissa doing? Whatever. I'm asleep. <laughs> I get it. I get it. <laughs> I was like, oh my god, it's midnight. I've got to be awake in six hours. I know, and then that makes me uh, unable to sleep even worse. So I ended up awake later than wow. we were doing at the normal time. Because <laughs> I'm like, I should be asleep. This is stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to end it soon. They seem to be rumbling. And um, if, if, the politicians don't give us something. <laughs> Even something as stupid as, hey, we're going to stop beating you for no reason. It doesn't make us happy. Might as well, you know, take that. Don't you think that we're getting close to the number of years away where we won't be doing this anymore? I don't know. I hope not. I love daylight saving. Really? Why? Um, I want it to be like Europe where it's like, sunlight till 10 30 at night that's just such a good vibe like the whole culture is so fucking happy when there's daylight for hours and hours <laughs> well, yeah it is kind of nice <laughs> but it, it really doesn't it doesn't change hate- anything other than the moving the clocks you can be a uh, right yeah just the whole the whole vibe the whole culture when everyone can like play after work and go and barbecue in the sunlight and eat ice creams and it's still daylight and it's a beautiful sunset and people aren't still at work it's really fucking nice okay it's just here i guess my problem is is i don't work that much like i don't have an eight hour a day job right yeah so i can barbecue pretty much anytime i'm not podcasting or or having a well, i've got so few classes right now it's it's like uh Four, five and a half hours a week. It's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> it's guess, so I little. I didn't realize that they'd, um, they've tried it before, right? They stopped it for a year. Did they? Yeah. And no. it was a disaster. I did not hear that. It was like um, kids were like going to school in the dark and stuff, and everyone was miserable, and they changed it back. Oh. In anyway. Wow. It's interesting. I did not know that. Yeah, I didn't know that either. I saw it came up on a tweet, and I was like, "What?" Did that when when did that happen? It must have been like when I was 
think it was Nixon or something. Okay, I yeah, I wouldn't have been awake. <laughs> 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 I, if I was alive, I was uh, I was not paying. I was living on an island with no electricity. <laughs> <laughs> I just resent the switching back and forth twice a year. Yeah, no, that's it. it feels like um, I, I, you, beatings. I mean, whether you pick it regular time or daylight savings time, pick one and stick to it. I'd be happy. Every yeah, time I, adapt to, I, I can adapt to either. Just I don't hate going back. And forth. I would like them to stick to the one where it's light, late, especially because after living in Germany as well, where like if that's daylight. I mean, if they time. canceled it and they. Had That's the what we're on now. They'd be like, it gets dark there at like 4 p.m. and it's so miserable and everyone is just in such a bad mood when it's dark early. Huh. It, do, it does mean that sunsets will happen later and later after work, which gives me a chance to, once lockdown is over, actually go photograph them. So, yeah. But also, mean sun, I miss sunrises, but I get sunsets. So, yeah. It, it, I take, I'll take, take one or the other. Just no, <laughs> don't yank me around both ways. Don't be I think such I'm a okay jerk. With a bit of a, <laughs> <laughs> all right um i was going to look up uh that try and find that philip k dick fans page which is very elusive uh, maybe i should use duck duck go i don't think it's better for finding stuff but yeah i'm so tired i couldn't figure out how to make a coffee or where to wow. find my app with the the story this morning when i woke up so all right no brain dead Philip K. Dick fans, and then what's the vocab word? Uh, crystal crypt. Crystal crypt. Crystal crypt. All right. That's not it. Every time I go searching, I, c I get a lot of my stuff, and then I find this blog, and I thought, oh, this is interesting, and then I realize it's Evan's blog. <laughs> <laughs> it's so mysterious. I think I do that too. I'm like, because. Evan's name isn't on there anywhere. Right? No, no. You have to dig for it. Log I never finished. I never got to the novels. That's okay. Unfinished blog. Oh, uh, you know what? I'm going to bring that up anyways because um, uh, it sounds a lot like your podcast, which I re-listened to. All right. Philip well, K. I, I, for Kip. the stories, I just read those things, basically, and blog. expounded a little bit on them. What was, what was the name of that blog? Philip K. Dick Review. Review, right. Yeah, for the stories, the stuff I did on the pod, on the blog, I just read. Yeah, that's why that's why it sounds so much like it. Then I kind of expounded on it. I'm not gonna rewrite the wheel. Rewrite uh, the wheel? Wow. Remake the wheel, whatever. <laughs> we're tired, Jesse. We're tired. <laughs> no, no, Evans. It's the best Sunday for a podcast. Like, actually, I wrote a script for one of the, the, the Lovecraft episodes I did. Like, it was the first episode in Shadow of Rinsmouth. I have three. I, I, I wrote a script for that one. Uh huh. And it was really short. And, you know, like, I made all my points really quickly. So, and then know, he said, the scripts more often. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but I, I, I am arguing with you, uh, while you're podcasting. I'm like, no, the love dead is good. You actually, that, that, that's, you, you no, just, that's a different issue. I didn't yes. cover the love dead. Yes, I know. That, that's, I just you need to read it. Basically, everything I've read says Lovecraft's hand in that is very minimal. I, I, don't, I don't see why. I mean, I'm, I'm not willing. I don't want to go in and like, 
investigate it that much. I, 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 I don't even need uh, you to things, investigate it. Most things, I, I respect the scholars, right? If, if I'm really invested in when you read it, in and coming up with my own interpretation, I'll do that. But for ninety percent of things, it's like if there's a scholar to consensus about something, I go with it. All right, I'll allow it. So <laughs> for now, so it seems like Lovecraft did not do much with the Eddie stories. I, dis- I disagree on this particular one, but I've read it, and and to me, it, it sings Lovecraft all over the place, and not in the way that he normally does. But it doesn't matter because when you get to it, um, you can make the uh, judgment after you've read it. Um, speaking of having read things, did anybody watch the movie that I uh, paid six dollars for? I watched I it this morning. Okay. Much. Good. All right. You paid. You paid. I thought. Save. I it was save it. You paid. Save it. <laughs> Yes. Okay. Six, Save it for the podcast. Back. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Evan, did you watch it? No, not yet. How <laughs> no. long is it? Uh, half hour. Oh, then yeah. I could have watched it. Yeah, uh, it's all right. <laughs> I was it's playing so Stellaris. I could have watched it. No, I figured it was a long movie. No, no. All right. Um, how about we do a show? Before Marissa's well, yeah, eyes. One minute. I'm just going to top up my coffee. Cause I think oh, I'm you did. It. You did figure out how to make it. I did figure it out eventually. Yeah, it was very difficult. Okay. <laughs> uh, huh? Gonna sleep all night. Going to sleep I all day. I hate daylight savings time, all right. Da, 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 dee, da, go. Somebody I bet on the bay? Was. I wish I could sit by the bay. No, no, somebody bet on the bay. And the bay... Oh, somebody bet on the bay. The bay is the color of the horse. Oh, I, I know very little about horses. But you, exactly you, you're, you're diddling the song there. I wonder if we should cancel and on race. <laughs> <laughs> you're canceling horses. Who are you canceling? Countdown races. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. I have to look at the lyrics. <laughs> yes, I'm sure they. Now that I think about it, I'm sure they are cancelable. Well, I came down there with my hat caved in. It presumes gender, that's for sure. Well, I came down there with my hat caved in. Oh, I'll go. Oh, I'll go back home with my pocket full of tin. Ooh, da do da day. Gonna run all night, gonna run all day. I'll bet my money on the bobtail nag. See, that's um sexist. Somebody just you laughing, but how is that sexist? <laughs> a nag. <laughs> is that um, only what is that? Female horses. <laughs> yes, but also it's sometimes applied to women. You can call a guy a nag as well. Yeah. Quit nagging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that's it's, no. Um, but they're more likely to say neg now. Don't neg me. Don't neg me. Oh, that's a different. Yeah. That's a different beast that can also be canceled. <laughs> well, the campdown ladies <laughs> sing this song. Do da do da. The campdown racetrack five miles long. Oh, de do da day. Gonna run all night. Gonna run all day. I'll bet my money on the bobtail nag. Somebody bet on the bay. This is a really stupid song. It is a really stupid song. When I first heard it, I thought five miles long. 
I mean, none, none of the races in the Kentucky Derby anywhere near that. Like, like, why is it? Why are they racing for five miles? I mean, even the Belmont, even the Belmont Park Stakes, which is the longest of the three of the Triple Crown, is only like a mile and a half. It's like, why are they racing so far? But actually, this is what the Kempton races. It's one of the best moments in it, where uh, um, one of the characters, it's Stan, is like he's at the standpipe. Oh you my! Guys read this book, um, and he's just like out no. there bird watching or something. That's a rainy day, and then he starts hearing this calliope music, and he's like, "What is?" This? And then he figures out his Kempton races. And I'm, shit I'm afraid to tell you this, but they actually it is cancel worthy. <laughs> Why is he cancel worthy? <laughs> <laughs> Look at this. It's a minstrel song. Uh, okay. The, so okay, it's supposed that, to be it's supposed to be uh, a black man singing it. I mean, mi- mi- minstrel show stuff is cancel worthy. Well, it would be a white guy in black face. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. That. If you look that, at the uh, the art, all the characters are black except for the guy in the very top, and maybe he's mm-hmm. black too. But even like the little cherubs are black. How, how about we instead we talk about Martians and Earthers instead? Can't then racist. No, that, they'll they'll probably cancelable too. Let's let's yeah. I mean, there's <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a um, what's uh they paint their skin in this. <laughs> what's that called? Black face? No, I guess red face. It's bad. Well, this is cancelable. Mm, <clears throat> Jesse, Jesse. I know how you like mock this sort of thing, but no, Jesse. No, Jesse, no. I'm. I don't the, know. The, the story's not cancelable. I should save it for the podcast. I think it is, but I, I'm not going to cancel it. I'm going to say, let's do a show. Hey, um, let's do a show. all recorders, oh, please record. Basically, you, Paul. On, on minstrel shows. <laughs> episode on minstrel shows. Uh, I would like you to do one on minstrel shows because I would like to know, know more about them, and you'll probably do your HW for that. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. Um, wait, let me just get a Wikipedia entry out. Instagram. Sorry, it's unrelated, but I just had to share it because it's a man wearing a peanut suit. Reasonable. Is that a basket full of peanuts he's holding? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) And now I want a peanut suit. (laughs) Well, the uh, birds will love you. What's that thing beside him on the top of the pillar? <laughs> I think it's more peanuts on. I don't know what. Wow. This is just nuts. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, well, one of the advantages of my character being stupid in the game is I don't get to make puns in the D game because my character is too dumb to actually make them. So uh, even while I, as a person, we were discussing my character before you showed up, Marissa. While I, as a person, might make puns, Ollie never would. So at least. The, the, my fellow characters aren't subjected to Doesn't that explain why you didn't have your, your light source or whatever? It's just too stupid. Uh, that, 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 that's the retcon. I mean, the player also forgot they had the glowing antler, but I retconned it to be <laughs> glowing dumb antler. enough. <laughs> I mean, the GM also forgot, but I'm putting it all on me. <laughs> well, see, that's your favorite thing to do. There's lots of blame to go around. You say, hey, sweep it all over here. Come on. I, I, I contain multitudes. <laughs> you got you got some um, some blame that needs spreading around. I'll take it. That's that's the the basic psychology there. We'll we'll, we'll work on it after the podcast. Okay. 
Let's do a podcast. <laughs> Twitter beefs. He was trying to start with me. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, Twitter beefs. DM beefs. Oh, <laughs> oh no wonder I didn't see it. I was like, the... "What? What beefs are these?" <laughs> Did we talk about? Um, I'm trying to. Well, it's about Chinese imperialism. Was part of it. Uh, I don't yeah, know. I'm yeah, no, complaining I, I, about like. How I follow all these leftists, these Marxist, Leninist, communists on, on Twitter, and it quite a lot of them are are basically genocide deniers. Well, uh, I, I, here's here's what I would say to that, Evan. To um, say, I mean, there's different levels. There's one like, oh, the U.S. is horrible. Yep. <laughs> and so it's hypocritical. This is like my coworker. He says it's hypocritical for an American to pick on China. Right. I, I, would, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily disagree. And living in China, right? His but, allegiance. He's going to be one of the last guys on that plane with you, <laughs> coming out of China when the war starts, right? When the war with the with war with Taiwan starts over who gets to trade with Taiwan. Um, but then I just don't know, like. I always kind of, for a long time, I felt sympathy with, like, the Leninist tradition in a way. And even the Soviet Union in a way, I, I felt kind of sympathetic with. But, like, the inheritors of that tradition, they're, they don't question authoritarianism at all. Well, it seems like you are anti-China in uh, at least some respects, and there is a lot of anti-China sentiment in the U.S. Right? Not official, sure. exactly. There's some official, some sort of ginned up, but it's just another boogeyman, right? I mean, yes, I China. Don't know if this is another boogeyman. It's, look, if we're talking about world powers, who are who is dangerous? Russia's not at the top, right? <laughs> it's not at the top unless no, we're talking nuclear war. More of a question for me, like. So what, like, like I get a newspaper, Evan, in my in my mail. I get a newspaper from that uh, Falun Gong news, you know, cult, um, and it's, it does seem to be a cult um, that tells me about all the Uyghurs and how they're all being uh, stuffed, and China's doing all sorts of bad stuff, and China's doing this, and China's doing that, and China's bad, right? Um, now, I would say that uh, they have a vested interest in, in trying to make China look bad because it, it seems to be the, the hobby horse of the leader of, of the Falun Gong movement. Um, so it's, it's pretty obvious what they want. They just want to sort of punish China, and I, 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 it's, it's almost pathological, right? Cause it's, so, okay, no, that aside, I, but, but that the aside. But the other side is binding the propaganda, too. So here's an article that I looked at earlier today, it's mm -hmm. in Global Times, which is Chinese state media. Yeah. Um, for a, so it's it's basic. So apparently, some of the, the the protesters in Myanmar attack some Chinese factories because the Chinese are backing the Myanmar coup, essentially. Oh wow! Right. And there was some some of the protesters attacked and burned down some Chinese factories. And there's a lot of like so like one. 
Yeah, so Milk Tea Myanmar. That's a really great name. Do you guys know the Milk Tea Alliance? No. This is I know Milk no, Tea, though. I, I, I like I Milk Tea. Milk Tea is something I drank in Nepal. No, Milk Tea Alliance. So this is like, it started with Hong Kong, Taiwan, Thailand. These kind of anti-authoritarian Asian move, popular movements. But because China doesn't drink milk tea generally. <laughs> I mean, it's more popular now than it's Taiwan, tea, right? Typically, Chinese tea is not milk, but in Taiwan, Hong Kong, Thailand, in India, you have milk teas. So it's called the Milk Tea Alliance, right? So he's called Milk Tea Myanmar. He says, if one civilian is killed by the coup, like by the our military, I guess, one Chinese factory comes to ashes, right? And so the Chinese media is freaking out about this. But here's what they say about the essentially about the anti-coup movement. Where is it? Um, for a long time, the West and some anti-Chinese forces were trying to make use of Myanmar as a strategic pivot to contain China. And this was the same way they talked about the Hong Kong protests. It's like, oh, like the Hong Kong protests are just an extension of the CIA, right? Which the CIA was so involved dumb. in that. It, they were. It's so dumb. It's so dumb. It totally takes away any agency. If, of, if you say just, then you're wrong. People. But, but the yeah, CIA was but involved in it that, It takes right? away any agency from these people. It, it, and it totally misunderstands what the people in Hong Kong or in Thailand or now in Myanmar are actually struggling against. But so many people on the, like the far left, like the, this, this Leninist left, which is, you know, it's still pretty weak, I guess, in the big scheme of things. But on, online, they're a pretty big force. They're pretty vocal. It, yeah. it makes me... They buy right into this, this Chinese... Propaganda. So the propaganda is working this way too. It, it, well, yeah, you'll, but you'll never what are we going to do about it? Is my question. Me that like the Hong Kong protests were orchestrated by the CIA. No, no, they weren't orchestrated, but they were. There were yeah. there were people who who were getting cash, right, to do. But so what if the CIA, for whatever nefarious reason, found in the Hong Kong protests something that they could, you know, benefit from? <laughs> <laughs> no, like the U.S. backed the the anarchists in Ro, Ro, Rojava, the Kurds in northern Syria, and they're creating a really interesting experiment in liberatory direct democracy. And they were supported by the U.S. government because they were fighting ISIS. There are arguments to be made there. The fact that the fact that the U.S. allies with you in some ideological way, like as in the case of maybe Hong Kong, or in a material way, like in Rojava. Doesn't mean the struggle is not legitimate. Mm. Uh, well, but there seems to be a growing vocal population that are saying, if you are against any developing country, its government, you must be an agent of the CIA. People love their conspiracies. Well, there literally are conspiracies, right? <laughs> so, of course, there are. But yeah. people love making them up. Well, yeah, and we have to be really careful not to, you know, over see them everywhere because, I mean, <laughs> yeah. there are people who, who. There's a lot more conspiracy theories than there are conspiracies. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, that yeah, what, probably. what the Chinese are doing in Xinjiang is similar to what the Canadians have done to yeah. indigenous yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. Well, so then 
Yeah, curse on both your houses. Yeah, but what are we going to do about it? So should the United States invade Canada to liberate all the natives? No. (laughs) Should China intervene in Canadian in Canadian uh, politics to liberate all the natives. No. Right? So if, if let's imagine that the Uyghurs are being put in to ovens right now, right? All of them. Not just the, not just the, the really bad guys. Not just the, and however we want to define it. You know, I'm sure some people have died. But, and not just separating children. They literally put in, into, into Nazi-style ovens. What are we going to do about it? I think we should probably well, not invade China. <laughs> Pretty sure we shouldn't invade China that. over it. It's a really bad situation. Like, That's really bad. So let's not invade China. That's my main thing. Well, I think boycotting the Olympics could be a good start. Uh, I, sure. I'm fine with that. Not trading with China. Yeah, sure. But notice that not right. trading with somebody is grounds for war, right? It's grounds no, for war. It'll be the right thing to do. I get it. I get it. I get yeah. it. I'm, the fact that it's the U.S. doing the right thing, I mean, the broken clock's right sometimes, right? So I, I think that, you know, like, look, I'm sure that's true. No, but, I, just, I guess my question is more, more about, like, why... Why are these people buying into this, this logic? Where's this kind of visceral anti-Americanism that's doesn't have any nuance. It's it bothers me, I guess. Well, it's uh, it's it's. I think it's largely because you've got a dominant player in the world controlling the seas, controlling all the choke points, right? Uh, yeah. Great Britain used to do this. It used to hold Gibraltar and Suez, and uh, basically the you know southern tip of Africa, all the places to get the trade to the places you wanted to go. Right, they have the navy to do it, and they sink those pirates and convert those pirates, and they they control the seas. Right now, it's the United States that does that. When China is doing it, then we'll be a you know a lot more worried about China. And China is on the rise. Right, we we know that, but <laughs> um, we're also not in but China. They're irritated. I, I mean, you are, and but an empire. That's my that's my point. They're an empire, and if imperialism is wrong, it, it's wrong when they do it. And it's wrong when we do it. Yep, it's it's wrong on both. Why is that cases. such a hard position for some people to? I maintain? think I think I think it it's because where are you seeing these conversations? They're on Twitter, and there's no nuance in yeah. Twitter, right? It's not it's not. I can make a long long thread, and somebody could take an exception to it. Most people don't because most people don't care. Because I'm not talking about the things like. I'm always very surprised when somebody gets really excited about something I said, and it's usually something super uncontroversial, right? It's just that they think it's controversial somehow. So I think everything is controversial. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I put up a a Dr. Seuss poem that I thought was really cute, um, but I didn't do it right away because I I didn't want to deal with people Seussing, right? But what's so funny is no matter what I put up, somebody will read into it something that is very l- natively political of that moment. If I put up mm-hmm. something like that's completely unconnected, like just a photo of good morning, and it's just some, you know, situ- scene, and then they start reading into the scene as being a, something related to 
you know, what happened in the news that day. And I'm just so disconnected from that particular news that I, I don't even understand what's going on. So Twitter is not a great for, place for nuance. But generally, the problem with propaganda is not the Chinese propaganda. Like, I literally, I literally get anti-Chinese propaganda in my mailbox, right? I, unsolicited. <laughs> they send me a newspaper called the Epoch Times, and it says all the bad things China is uh, doing. I don't understand why they think this is important for me to do, uh, to know, but they're trying to convince it. There are literally Chinese agents in Canada trying to make pro- China stuff happen in Canada. Like they sponsor sort of like city um, conventions, right? They, they're trying to make better connections to Canada. Um, there is a, you know, Canada's a, a struggling ground right now between China and, and the United States over that lady from Huawei, right? She's in prison or uh, house arrest, uh, waiting extradition to the United States on, basically charges that are essential to ransom, right? You better conform or we're going to keep your billionaire, right? Wow. Okay. That's a nice little struggle to be in the middle of a tug of war over, right? Um, and there's a couple of Canadians in prison right now in China as a retaliation, right? So uh, my position is who's the bad guy here? To me, I think Canada arresting this lady for something that's supposedly done in the United States. I understand we have uh, treaties with them, but prima facie, the charges they're making against her are shit, right? It's a struggle for a tug of war. It's a, it's a struggle for leverage. They're trying to influence each other by pressuring each other in certain ways. Um, and that's bad on both sides. Uh. But who did it to Canada? It was the United States did it to Canada. And then China does it back to Canada. And Canada's like, what the fuck? I'm like, what the fuck are we in this for? Right? Why are we in this fight? Because there's, there, there is an empire in effect. But one is saying, I'm in charge. And the other one's saying, I'm in charge. And the one that's in charge right now is literally in charge. So, you know, it's like uh, you, you can... You can go to war with everybody over everything if you want, but pick your targets. So I think that that's probably the logic behind uh, some people in what you're calling the what, extreme leftists or whatever, Leninists or Marxists or whatever. Those people, if they're uh, defending China, I think it's largely because there's a, so much anti-China rhetoric and pa uh, and propaganda in the states and it's not even much compared to you know, anti-russia one right that should i mean I'm, that, I, it, it's so i got canceled by the the chinese the chinese canceled me for a while <laughs> what did you do okay okay guys i've got to go because my fellow players are are calling for okay, me. Okay, have so. a good yeah. one, Paul. You gotta go too. I'm getting hungry. I get but, it. I just want to say, Evan, this what this kind of reminds me of is back in the 60s and 70s when leftists in the United States would defend everything the Soviet Union did, no matter how horrible. It's the same sort of thing. This is so willful blindness. Yeah, but mm. more importantly, like, what do you want to do? Do you want to go to war in East Asia over <laughs> over what communists are doing? Let people fuck up their own country. Don't go and fuck up their unfuck their country for them. Right? That's that's what I would say. 
right? So anyway, yeah, there's a lot of anti-communist propaganda, but the Russians aren't even communist. It's crazy. Uh, see you later. Um, by the way, okay. Appendix N is next week. Oh, you don't need to know that one, Paul. All right. No, that one I'm not on. All right. All right, later, you guys. Have a good one, Marissa. Bye-bye. See you on the internet.